Three, two, one, and we are back, Julie. It is another Sunday. Yes, we made it again. That's right. We're doing our Sunday debrief at the beach. This is something Julie and I have started doing a couple months ago. Um, Actually, we did it more than a couple months ago, didn't we? We were doing this like. Yeah. Were we doing this during the earthquakes? I think we were. Yeah, we were. I just six months worth. I just remember doing it at different beaches before. Yeah. Before COVID. When we were allowed to. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, that's interesting. So we may have been doing this for a long damn time. I Who think knows? we have. <laughs> well, this is our Sunday show where Julie and I uh, are unfiltered, unscheduled, have no agenda, have no um, previous notions about what we want to talk about, and we just literally debrief. This is our version of, um, you know, a brain dump, basically, where Julie and I just talk about the things that are on our minds and kind of bounce things back and forth between the two of us and then um, maybe talk a little bit about what we're looking forward to. Mostly we're relating back to our coaching client stories because we've been coaching for so long, you know, decades at this point, have had over 100,000 coaching calls easily well, each. We stopped counting that I know, years ago. Five years, six yeah, years so ago. Yeah, more than that. Yeah. Well, moral of the story is, is that we've known what happens is when you coach that many agents and you have those many conver- that many conversations on an ongoing basis – you, you guys experience this too in your real estate businesses. I remember when Julie and I sold real estate, you'd certainly find yourself carrying some emotional baggage you didn't know you were carrying. But that's what we use the weekends for is to sort of let that emotional baggage go. Because even as much as you think you're a professional and as much as you know how to um, you know, def- put up emotional barriers so that you don't end up giving too much away on a coaching call or whatnot, or you got, again, you guys can relate to maybe you're just learning this. One of the keys for long-term ever-increasing levels of success and sanity right <laughs> there's a new harris rule Important. it is to keep an emotional barrier between you and the people you're trying to help because we're all empathetic to one degree to one level or degree to you know to another and you find yourself absorbing the emotions of other people at too much of intensity you're not going to leave anything for yourself so Anyway, long story short, that is what we use this uh, Sunday debrief for, is so Julie and I can sort of do our purge. Yeah. So Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, kind of emotional management with regards to doing real estate. And I think in normal circumstances, you know, we know from doing our own transactions, but certainly through coaching clients, when you buy or sell real estate, it generally brings out the best or the worst of you. And for a lot of people... It really is the worst. Not that they're bad people. It's just that it's so stressful, even in a normal situation. And then, you know, you add some global pandemic and economic recession at the very least. And it's like, well, how do you think people are going to act? So one of the things that that I've heard you say on coaching clients, and we certainly learned along the way, was to show emotion without letting yourself get emotional. That's really a big difference, right? You can have compassion and you can feel for people, but you've got to be really careful not to become a sponge and absorb all of it. You've got your own stuff to deal with. And by the way, if you guys hear strange noises, anything from – do you hear that music? I do. Okay. Anything <laughs> from loud music to uh, parrots flying by. We're not in our normal mm. studio. We're outside and the wind is blowing and we're enjoying this beautiful tropical day in the Caribbean. Um, and at the same time, I noticed Julie is checking her iPhone app about every five seconds for this hurricane that's supposedly <laughs> coming our direction. Yeah, and for those of you in Texas, our heart goes out to you with that Hurricane Hannah pounding you. So we've got our own probably on the horizon. We might be, you know, they never know, but uh, it's about a week away, I think. We'll you, see. You know, it's funny. You and I grew up in Ohio, grew up in Columbus, Ohio, 
and we've lived all over the country. Yeah. And pretty much as soon as we were able, we, when we moved out of Columbus, we pledged never to live in a place again with snow. That's true. That was pretty much a minimum. But we right didn't there. say no hurricanes and earthquakes. Yeah, I know. That's what I was going I about. We should so have ironic. had a lo- we should have had a longer list. Yeah, live but, and learn, right? But if you do rule out hurricanes and earthquakes, okay, <laughs> seriously, now I want you to think about this. Right. If you're going to rule out hurricanes and earthquakes, where on planet Earth does that leave you that you can live where you're not going to have winter? Very few places, I think. Name one. Well, I don't know. That's coastal. Been... That's coastal where the average temperature is like seventy five. South America on the on the western side that doesn't get hurricanes. I don't know. South Africa, maybe? Well, point, maybe. Remember, you remember when you and I were... I'll tell you guys a funny story. So, New Zealand. New Zealand. Well, uh, they get earthquakes. I think they get tsunamis, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this goes to the fact that every place... And there's no such thing as a perfect place. No. That's a yeah. good point. So I'm going to tell you guys a funny story. Um, Julie and I sold real estate in this area called... Well, in our... You know, basically our second part of our real estate career. We wanted to bigger challenge so we moved uh house and you know business to new albany ohio and there was this really beautiful gorgeous area called new albany country club area and it was developed by a guy whose name you guys might recognize from the jeffrey epstein um sort of saga that's seemingly going to go on forever uh les wexner so les wexner was the he's a he's from columbus where julie and i are from and in columbus les wexner is like a king it's difficult to describe how i think famous and influential he is when you drive down like julie and i went for a couple years we went to ohio state university and you drive down ohio state university and even then all the like every second mile maybe third building was named after wexner mm-hmm. but now it's not every third building it's like every building and it's wexner this and it's well, wexner that. who he is no i will i'll okay. get to it all right so wexner founded um originally the limited and the limited as you guys may or may not know it was essentially through les wexner's chain stores and it was limited. It was Victoria's Secret. Eventually, he bought Victoria's Secret. It was limited too. It was Express. It was Bath Lane Bryant, Bath and Body Work, uh, White Barn Candle Company, Abercrombie, I think. For Abercrombie a while. and Fitch. And yeah. there's another one. There was another fancier version of White Aber- Barn Candle. No, I already said that one. Anyway, so he owned a bunch of brands, and these he were Henry Bendel. Yeah, he owned Henry Bendel, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's still another one that yeah, we're not a remembering. Lot is the point. Yeah, he. Yeah. So what he would do is he was buying. He was uh, um, developing real estate. Uh, he had come up with the concept that is sort of the modern mall, which where it's essentially des- designed after an Italian um, or really any uh, you know European village, where the center of the village is like a some sort a of meeting hub. Maybe yeah. it's a huge. What's that big um, water fountain with all the horses in it? In uh, the Trebi uh, fountain. Yeah, the Trebi fountain. It's right. A palazzo, basically. Right. It's a palazzo, and then there'd be stores around it, and the da 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 da. So what you guys will you know what you're enjoying if you ever go back to malls. Uh, was essentially a vision that Wexner had. And then, obviously, he would have his uh, tenants, or his he would be a tenant, his all of his stores and all these malls all around the country. So if you will remember, it wasn't that long ago that you'd go to one major city and then another major city, and, and the, there wouldn't be essentially clones of the same outdoor shopping areas. Well, the first one he built, I guess the first one he built was in Florida, of these big outdoor shopping areas, and the next one was called Easton, which was in Columbus. And now they're... I mean, rarely do Julie and I travel where there isn't another one that was essentially either built by or um, built to replicate the success of these outdoor shopping You can kind of tell situations. by the mixture of stores. Oh, yeah. Well, you can tell by the way it's designed. It yeah. feels like you're walking in a town. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. So he was an absolute visionary. He's visionary for clothing, visionary for – and what, it was funny when he started in the basically in the 70s. 
And there was a lot of people Julie and I knew that had stock in the limited before it went public that became well, families we knew because we were just kids, you know, into the 80s, who basically made a bunch of money off the stock going public. And it was in, uh, later in life, obviously, we moved in Austin, Austin, Texas. There was uh, a lot of Delionaires, which they, you know, people that made a bunch of money off Dell going uh, public. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, this, what I'm talking about now reminds me of EXP and all the people that are frankly yeah, becoming wealthy off the EXP yeah, stock. Days, right? EXP realty yeah. stock, guys, if you guys aren't buying it or following it, you really should be. It's amazing. So Wexner was, um, I won't even talk about any of the sort of the dark shadows that follow him around because, you know, they're conjecture and never, nothing's been proven. But he, um, was a, he is a billionaire and he's in his 80s um, and so here's a little something julie and i actually had a car cleaning and detailing business we started this when we were in high school and we and we uh, built it through college and it became actually quite successful one of our customers was les wexner now we never dealt directly with les wexner so there was this organization let me just take a sidestep and i'll swing you guys back in called ypo Young President's Organization. And the Young President's Organization, again, if you've never heard of it before, you should Google it. It has a very strong uh, chapter in Columbus, Ohio. And so we started doing works for some of these YPO guys. Uh, essentially, they're some of the most respected executives on planet Earth, and you have to be invited to be a, into it, you know, invited into it, and you have to have, uh, basically be a, a president of a company of a certain size before you're 40 was the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a sister organization uh, that Julie and I actually helped to found in Columbus called YEO, which is just Young Entrepreneurs Organization, um, but that's a different story for a different day. Um, so the YPO guys in Columbus, uh, we were fortunate enough to get work, uh, you know, to start taking care of their cars, and in some cases their planes, and in some cases their planes and their boats, <laughs> and they then would um, refer us to other people. So we ended up getting Les Wexner as a customer, but unlike all these other guys, because Les is obviously on a different level, he had private security. And his private security originally, when Julie and I were uh, working on his cars, you'd go to his house and, you know, lived in Bexley and you'd pick up his cars and you'd meet one of the private security guys who were almost always uh, local sheriffs, like, you know, deputy types that were just working, doing part-time work at Wexner's house as security. But as soon as he moved out to New Albany, all those guys were gone, and they were replaced by guys who were – now, the rumor was ex-Mossad agents, which were basically like ex-CIA uh, you know, special forces guys. I don't know if that was true again, all conjecture, but they definitely were badasses. <laughs> they were complete and total badasses because they never talked. They never stopped staring at you when we'd go out to uh, work on cars for him. At that point, he would uh, – you know, then it would be like – essentially a completely different experience and it was funny too um always black mercedes mm-hmm. that was his thing like if you you really want to look like the you know, know. the bad guy from uh <laughs> from a bond from, from a yeah. bond flick and mm-hmm. be associated with the probably the world's worst yep. you know criminal Blackman's. you know as far as <laughs> i remember yeah jeffrey epstein well that would you know drive black mercedes yes, so uh, yeah fast forward um, Les Wexner then starts secretly buying up land in New Albany, and then people eventually catch wind of it. But he had been buying up land for years, and nobody knew about it. Well, and- New Albany back then, nobody would have thought about anything. I mean, I, that's where me and my sister went to ride horses, and we thought it took forever to get there. Yeah, well, it did. Back and then. it was just basically a wide spot in the road. But he'd been buying up farms. He'd been, you know, formed a whole bunch of, you know, entities that were buying up. It's, he then, turns out, 
you know, Columbus Dispatch breaks a story that he's bought all this land, he's secured all of it, and he's announcing that he's going to be building this incredible, you know, this whole neighborhood thing, this whole community. And he did, and it's spectacular. And the the buildings there, the houses there, you have to go onto Realtor.com and just put put in New Albany Country Club and click through and look at some of the pictures, especially the older ones that were built in the 90s. They are just magnificent. And Julie and I have traveled all over the world, and only when you go to like parts of England maybe do you see uh, houses that were built to the same standard, the same yeah, level of detail. Well just spec, just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just imagine a billionaire looking for a way to fill his days, so he wants to play <laughs> architect, and that's what he did. Yeah, very crafty. Yeah, well, the the New Albany <laughs> country, the actual New Albany Country Club Country Club that's building was won some sort of like the year it was uh, open, it won some national design award, mm-hmm. and supposedly Wexner had a hand in on de- uh, designing. Yeah, yeah the well, interior and exterior. For it, for sure. And guys, remember as we're telling you guys the story, Julie and I came from less than nothing, dirt poor, <laughs> right? And so, our, our first part of our career, we were, were most of what we sold were like seven hundred and fifty square foot. The yeah. garage was bigger than the house. You know, 750 not, square foot for like 50 or 60 grand, just yeah, putting in like perspective. A, I used to call them a no bedroom, no bath, but they were right. uh, two bedroom, one bath mostly. So they were like duck blinds. They're like duck but, blinds. But yeah, there wasn't much to them except decent neighborhood and, you know, better than renting. Yeah. So New Albany was quite, quite a change. Yeah. And we did that intentionally because we wanted to, we wanted to go up market. We wanted to say, sell, hey, fewer houses and make a hell of a lot more money, which is what we ended up doing. Um, it was fun when we did that too, because it was after maybe our first year, we became the most dominant listing agents in that market. Um, and national association of realtors. Do you remember that? They did mm-hmm. that article on yep. us. Somewhere we still have Remember that. when those pictures came out, you and I go like, damn, we need to get lose some weight. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> no, holy we're shit. Like, what? How'd that happen? We got fat. No and we did. At midnight. <laughs> well, right after that article <laughs> came hell? out, it was like a three page spread and everyone, <laughs> Julie and I looked worse and worse. <laughs> it was horrible. And that was with a professional photographer. Yeah. yeah. We, all, we blamed the lighting. Yeah, that's right. No. It was no. the pizza. It was. <laughs> well, so... Um, that's where we sold real estate, but Wexner now is um, implicated in this whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Because, so when you guys hear all these things, and it's I with the arrest of the what's her name, the yeah, gal, I don't remember, I remember her name. name. Yeah. yeah, with you know Epstein's dead and this other gal that's still alive, with the rest of her, the thing that's bubbling up in Columbus are all the old dark shadows that are associated with you know with Les Wexner, and it is fascinating the things that are starting to come up. And one of the things is the, um, you know how we got started on this, by the way, is talking about how nothing's perfect. So I'll have to go back and talk yeah, about I this house. I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. But one of the things uh, that's really interesting is that there's the implications are that Wexner uh, through Epstein are actually agents for um, essentially the Mossad and for the CIA. I mean, the, some of the things that are starting to bubble up are crazy. It's when, a twisted tale when, when you sure. when you get past the disgustingness that's associated with the you know the underage girls, you get past the you know which most people won't because they just want the sort of the you know the disgusting part. That's what they want their story to be. Once you accept the fact that there was you know essentially people from all walks of life and all levels of influence that were visiting Epstein for more than a you know good game of chess, once all that comes out, then you're really going to have to go back and you have to think about well, how was somebody like this able to do what he was able to do for as long as he was able to do it? And Les Wexner, it turns out, pretty verified at this point, was his only client. You know, was his only investor client. So the speculation seems to be running pretty thick that 
that whole thing is going to start pointing towards a international blackmailing thing that had some, uh, you know, backing by, you know, U.S. government, maybe, yeah. or the Israeli government. Who knows? I mean, it's going to make for a great Netflix series, that's for I sure. Know, and you know what people are going to say first? In Columbus? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? That can't be true. I hope it's not yeah, true. because people even know about that stuff. Honestly, I hope none of it's true Thank because you. I think what Les Wexner has done with his life and amazing. what he's done and for he's done a lot of for Columbus work. and what he's done yeah. for the charity is amazing. So speaking of charities, getting back to my original point. So when Julie and I were selling real estate out there, they they would have uh, Les and Abigail Wexner would have the best parties at their house. And I'm not talking about like I'm talking about parties that you don't. We never felt like we belonged there. No. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, we had some knowing looks from some of the old guard realtors who were out yeah, there wondering how like, the hell we got in. A little bit Downton Abbey, a little bit fashion show, a lot of kind of mystery. What's going on here? Just a different world. I don't. And I was never sure why we actually got invited to those parties. Sometimes it was a charity and you're donating money. But I wonder, truthfully, going back, whether or not it was because Wexner had remembered, and this is a reach beyond a reach, whether he had remembered that Julie and I uh, had worked for him previously, um, taking care of his fleet of cars. Well, I mean, how else would we have gotten invited? uh, That's the reason I think. think It has to be a car connection. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, because they were friendly with another enough other uh, old school realtors that it wouldn't have been that way, right? And he, think. you know, I don't think I I never actually met Wexner. I never even exchanged one word with either. him. Never once. His wife we had. Yeah. No, no, actually we did. We met him once when we were walking into his mansion. Uh, yes, yeah, it, there was once. the there was the greeting line of the royal family. Remember? Yeah, yeah. I, you know what I remember is what, that was when they had their little kids. They have, like, four little kids back then, and they had the most giant stuffed animals in the foyer ever. They did. That's what I remember about yeah, that. Yeah, it was around Christmas, remember? I think that was the same party. Yeah, and he had, guys, he has this guy, I'll tell you what, the most amazing art collection. He's internationally known for his art collection. Here, here's the funny thing, too. When he was, when we were taking care of his cars, he always had, like, he'd have Suburbans. He'd have always, like, an SL, you know, Mercedes, Mercedes S-Class. And then maybe he'd have a Porsche 911, but usually not. And he just, you know, he would just buy boring, stoic cars and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I was always wondering why he didn't collect. Remember, I'm a card nerd, right? And Julie became a card nerd by proxy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always wondered why he didn't have cooler cars. So sure enough, years later, um, on the down low again, he coll- he builds in, uh, you know, the biggest. I think probably most respected Ferrari collection in the world. And he goes about it just building it just the exact way that he did New Albany, where he starts buying through proxies. People don't know what's happening with the cars. Um, And he'd take a car. And again, I know none of you guys care about cars, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, because it's Sunday and well, suck it up. (laughs) (laughs) Just because. So he would go buy a doesn't matter what Ferrari. And it would be something that would be incredibly rare and incredibly expensive. Ferraris are like, recession proof Ferraris have become like fine collector art where you can buy if you are worried about your you know your 20 million dollars going down in value you don't want to put it in the stock market you don't want to put it in real estate maybe you put it in gold well one thing you definitely can put it in if you can find one for sale is a super rare you know essentially blue chip Ferrari and it'll the money will at least stay the same if not increase in value that's what these cars have become so he was he was buying these cars all over the planet and you know from private collections he had all the, just again the exact same way he did in New Albany he'd have all these different people acting as his emissaries and no one would know who the car was actually going to and who cares the check was big enough and he was paying up for all these cars and the thing that was shocking he would do 
he did not even the car was originally white or yellow or doesn't matter what every one of them uh, was repainted red so his ferrari collection now everything all of his ferraris are red i've only seen pictures okay so i'll tell you another funny story then i'll get back to my original point so the ferrari club of america meets at um columbus and they had done it once back in the 80s so it's you know every 30 years or so they just pick different um cities to have their big annual meet so this was maybe five hell you know what's probably more like 10 years ago now Hmm. probably more than that so the ferrari club of america meets at in columbus and here it is the hometown of les wexner who has the world's rarest ferrari collection and you know of course everyone from traveled all over the globe to meet at this you know ferrari club of america thing and brought in their ferraris would ship them in would fly them in just this is an extremely you know these things are things that uh and by the way guys you'll be surprised not everybody that's into collecting cars are uh rich a lot of them basically sacrifice way, I mean, housing, everything, lifestyle, because they have such a passion for um, certain types of cars. And that's the thing that's nice about being a car nerd. And some of you guys have hobbies like sports, very similar, where it breaks through the demographics. You can be standing at, um, in a, in a, you know, it doesn't matter where, looking at some extremely rare Shelby Cobra or something. And sending or standing right next to you that you're having this wonderful conversation with is a guy that you later find out is a billionaire or something or a famous musician or we, we've had all kinds of situations like that before. We were at a car show and um, uh, I, I can give you example after example. We've met some amazing people through just basically being car enthusiasts, people you'd never guess were car enthusiasts. Um, so Wexner had amassed this large, amazing Ferrari collection. The Ferrari Club of America was meeting in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Wexner not only doesn't go to the, um, you know, the Ferrari Club of America event, doesn't show up. Nobody knew whether he was or wasn't, but he didn't. Not only that, it comes out that he is in, you know, people are saying, we want to go see your car collection. So he says, fine, but you have to pay to see it. So he ends up basically, and I guess a lot of people ended up doing it because these cars were so rare. I forget the amount he charged, but it was like 300 bucks. It was a lot per head to go see the uh, his car collection. So I just thought that whole thing was kind of actually Every hilarious. Entrepreneur, right? Yeah, exactly. You want to come see my cars? You got to pay. pay. <laughs> oh, well, so the reason for this story, Julie and I are at this party at his house, and um, we, you know, we park the car. And of course, there's valets there, not rent a valet, but permanent valets. And they park our car wherever the hell they parked it. And Julie and I walked up this pea, you know, pea gravel driveway or part of it. And we get to the front door. It's the largest, tallest front door I've ever seen before. It's like a castle. I, I mean, honestly, how tall do you think a door I, was? I mean, not even taller than like what you'd expect in a normal luxury home. Like four times that tall. And when the door opened, there wasn't a sub no. door. It wasn't like a no. su- It wasn't just a facade. It was an actual yeah. big ass door. It's like something you'd see in Italy, really. Yeah, I mean, totally. That scale. Yeah, but not like a medieval yeah. door where no, there's a sub no. door. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you have to lean in. Yeah. This was an actual door. It oh, was yeah, probably had to probably be. I don't want to say twenty feet, but I bet who it. Who even it, makes hardware for something like that? Well, now you've got me thinking about the hell this door was, but I remember that. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. And and then of course the door slowly opens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just ridiculous the whole thing. And then and there's a guess who? You know, a butler. Wearing all black, like I think it may have been like a ninja outfit. It was like something out of a <laughs> something Tarantino movie or whatever. Yeah. So um, we're there, we're at the party, and we're you know trying to not have everyone realize that we're just poor kids yeah. from the other side of town. Blend, blend, <laughs> blend, glass blend. Wine and blend. I remember blend. I was afraid to get a glass of wine because I didn't want to spill it on anything. Act like you know what the picture's about. Yeah. <laughs> Pretend. I, I also remember a lot of uh, I can't remember the 
remember the artist's name, but those brass sculptures of out west stuff. I remember that. Remington? Maybe. I think yeah, it's Remington. Remington. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I yeah, he those. did have some monster ones, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, so the party's, you know, nearing an end and, you know, you don't overstay and a, a deal like that. And, mm, by party, people just rubbing elbows, really. So we're walking out and we're standing, you know, on the other side, on the outside of the house in this gorgeous courtyard. You guys should go online, by the way, if you're near a computer and Google Les Wexner Estate, New Albany, something like that. And you guys got to see this house. You'll know I wasn't exaggerating. So um, we're waiting for our car. And I remember waiting in the courtyard for our car to be, you know, couriered around. And I remember seeing way, 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 way on the horizon this bright, bright cross. Mm -hmm. And this cross was, you know, know a cross as in a Christian cross. And what what it was is a a low, what is it, wattage, voltage, whatever, AM uh, radio station radio yeah. yeah it was an antenna yeah. for a christian radio station that had been there just forever it, you know and it, it was clearly visible from the front door of his house as he was looking past this expansive property i mean now he's obviously got stables there he's got guys he's when we when he was building the mansion because julie and i knew some of these other ypo guys one of the ypo guys we knew and i'm not going to mention his name was one of the largest builders of schools in ohio but also in the entire midwest and he, his, one of his, you know, his construction guys talking to their construction guys, evidently underneath this property, there were tunnels that were made connecting the main Wexner estate to the, um, this, um, I guess you can only call it a, a mansion, but not at the same scale that was also on the same property. That mansion that was connected through an underground tunnel was originally owned by a guy named Jack Kessler. And Jack Kessler was the, his right hand when developing New Albany. But some for some reason, they decided to have mansions on the same property. And there's been tons of conjecture about what the some reason is. But you guys can Google that yourselves, too. But the the, um, the tunnel was, again, I've heard that numerous mm-hmm. times. And the construction guys, everyone out there, even the guy pushing the uh, broom, had to sign non-disclosure agreements. But, you know, people are going to talk. So that same uh, Kessler if I remember correctly, ends up having to sell the property. Wexner bailed him out of some, you know, uh, development thing in off the coast of North Carolina or South mm-hmm. Carolina. I don't remember what. Anyway, so long story short, Wexner bails him out, and then Wexner gets the house. So this house that was essentially Jack Kessler's originally is then given or no, no, it was sold to Jeffrey Epstein. So this has not been coming. This has not come out in the news. Not nobody talks about this. So. And so you're hearing it here first. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the Jeffrey Epstein house was on the estate of Lex of Les Wexner's estate, as it is now. And again, if the rumors are to be believed, there was an actual, and I, I'm just guessing based on what other people told me, so don't hold me to this. But evidently, again, Wexner had a tunnel. This, this very same tunnel was still connecting those two properties on Wexner's estate. Um, so beyond this former Jack Kessler, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein mansion basically way way in the distance is where that cross was now why does this matter mr wexner was jewish and um the uh, there was again real estate people talk and there were tons and tons of rumors circulating that wexner had tried to buy that radio station and had tried to buy that radio station uh even before like anyone knew he was buying land out there he just wanted to buy it for the sake of i'm, I'm assuming making it so that the cross on his distant horizon wouldn't be a distraction from the stars and whatnot. I mean, religion aside, it 
did look like a bit of a plight on his otherwise perfect property. Yeah. It was weird. No matter what it was, it was a big sign in the sky. It could have just been a big, you know, cowboy boot. The same thing. It was an eyesore. Same idea. Yeah. I mean, it was just a little Cell tower would have had probably less effect because it doesn't light up. And so Julie and I are standing there waiting for our car and we're seeing this whole, you know, scene going on. She and I are noticing the same thing way off in the distance. And it was way off in the distance, but out there, there were no city lights. So it was pretty damn bright. Um, And uh, yeah. And so, the little epiphany she and I had, and we had it almost the same time, was no matter how rich you are, no matter where you live, no matter anything, how many advantages you have when building your property, just there always are going to be things that are wrong with it. There's always going to be compromises. <laughs> there you know. always are. Well, that's true because that was certainly, I mean, what is it? At least twenty thousand square foot houses, you know, oh, and no, beautiful no. land. The house is at least seventy five thousand. Yeah. Nobody knows for sure. This is crazy. Twenty thousand square feet. I don't feet. know. That's still big. That was the maid's quarters. <laughs> probably. It was probably more like a, uh, Epstein's house. But. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, I tell a similar story. Do you remember uh, the treasure hunter who we helped? Who oh, yeah. His, you tell that story? Okay, because it's the same point. No matter what your price range or your abilities are. Oh, you're not going to run over that story. That story's too good. Well, I'll, I'll start you out, and then you can finish it. I remember when you were first talking to him, and you were doing a little pre-qualification, he basically said his his price range was something like five hundred thousand to five million, and it could be anywhere in Columbus. He preferred to have land and a nice house. Well, I mean, doesn't that sound kind of flaky to you? Well, let me tell a story. Yeah, go ahead. This story's hilarious. Columbus, Ohio is crazy, and I'll tell you why it's crazy for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, first of all, it, it, you know, when you're from that part of the country, there's a lot of old, old, wealthy, powerful people that made a lot of their money. Um, in the Industrial Revolution, maybe made it off, um, you know, just all kinds of different things. things. But there's a lot of really amazing entrepreneurs that live in Ohio um, and just all kinds of really fascinating people. You guys would be surprised. But the other thing that's in Ohio, it was Rickenbacker Air Force Base. And Rickenbacker Air Force Base, and I'm not going to it, it was supposedly where <laughs> all the whole a- other tangent where the whole, yeah, right, where the whole alien research and stuff was done, where all the rec craft from the um, Roswell accent were supposedly stored, but that's a different tangent. We could talk about all the Columbus, Ohio rumors about that on another day. Um, so there was, again, it's funny Julie brings this up. Back in the 80s, there was a guy that worked at uh, Battelle. He was a very well-respected, just everything about him was very well-respected. Professor, doctor, the whole thing. His name uh, is Tommy Thompson. Battelle so, is like a scientific research center for people which, that aren't familiar right. with Right. Battelle is not only a scientist, scientific research center. It's rumored to be, again, uh, tied into the CIA. Uh, again, more homework for you guys. You can Google it yourselves. Battelle Memorial Institute, CIA. So, and they, it's supposedly not, Battelle's um, private, a private entity. It's not publicly traded, but nobody knows exactly who all their customers are. And essentially over the years, people have just assumed that it was mm-hmm. connected with intelligence. True or not, who knows? So Tommy worked there. He worked at Ohio State University. He was very well respected. And he was also known as somebody of a, someone of an entrepreneur, uh, something of a character. And he had developed a un- underwater submarine that could go deeper than anything ever had been able to previously and be operational for the sake of retrieving things on the bottom of the, um, you know, the ocean. And he could build this technology. This was way before James Cameron, way before all those subs that you guys think you know about from um, Titanic, way before all that. This Tommy Thompson guy had essentially created technology that would allow, I think there were manned or unmanned subs. I really don't remember. I think they were unmanned. 
So there was um, this uh, sunken Spanish galleon that was off the coast. I believe it was North Carolina. You can, you can GTS it if you I, want to. Your computer died. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So he um, – GTS stands for Google that shit, by the way, in case you guys want to adopt yeah. that. But it was off the East Coast, <laughs> somewhere in the I'm, I'm pretty coast. sure it was North Carolina, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it was – everyone knew it had gone down. It had been well documented. It wasn't a, you know, some sort of crazy pirate thing. It was a ship that, if I remember correctly – it's funny I remember all this mm-hmm. – that was actually in the process of exporting gold that was – uh, from uh, Central America that had been originally uh, uh, the possession of the Incas that Pizarro, Pizarro, the Spanish explorer, had some sort of, uh, had some stolen it, stored it, and it was getting shipped back or partially shipped back on this galleon that was going back, something like that. Something, it was crazy. Yeah, that's basically the gist of it. Yeah, but it, it was, it it was had, wackadoodle it had, as hell. I mean, the ship itself had some wacko history. Yeah. Right. And so this this ship, obviously, you guys can guess where I'm going since I talked about subs, <laughs> sunk. So the ship ship you know sinks. People sort of know where it is. It's in this really you know obviously deep part of the ocean. It's just that seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a shallow part of the ocean. Can you sink in the shallow? <laughs> yeah. Well, so Tommy then. Remember earlier I was telling you guys about the YPO people. So there were some other families and, uh, you know, all these people are interconnected through YPO. This is how, uh, you know, again, a lot of the things we're sharing with you now we heard from our YPO friends back when we were taking care of their cars in Columbus, Ohio. So Tommy then goes to a lot of very deep pocketed people in Columbus and gets money out of them. And they then get a stake in the claim, you know, if there is any to be found. Well, they were funding his expedition, basically. Yeah. And so the Wolf family, who on Columbus Dispatch, you had um, – I don't know if Wexner was involved, honestly, but I knew there were quite a few YPO families that were involved. There were other some – like Ross Labs. I think Stanley Ross had put in money. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some – you know, there, on all the people, but there was a guy named um, – gosh, who was the guy that started – uh, that went – that made basically hundreds of millions of limited uh, – Swarovski – anyway, I don't remember. Columbus Mor- people – Morosky, yeah. That's what was it. That. I know. So Columbus, Ohio people that are old as us, you might remember all this because it was always talked about in the news when Tommy Thompson, guess what? He goes and finds the gold. He he shows proof of the gold. He brings the gold up. He, you know, everybody's excited about the gold. The insurance company, everyone, all these sort of legal consternations. It was seen as the greatest discovery in forever. But turns out Tommy Thompson doesn't want to give up the gold. Nope. <laughs> so he it's goes. Like Bugs Bunny in the desert. Mine, mine, all mine. <laughs> exactly. So he brings up the gold, and what the hell happens? The gold nobody really knows. Yep. And uh, I, I think some of it actually ended up getting delivered, but uh, my memory goes choppy at this point. All I remember was Tommy ends up in jail. Yeah. For telling a federal judge to piss off because he won't give up where the gold is. He might even still be in there now. I want to say he's still in, I think he is. Yeah. It's and so been a while he won't give up the, he won't give up the gold. Everyone knows he pulled gold up and in huge amounts of gold. Um he wouldn't give up, you know, that was the whole end of it. But prior to him going to jail, obviously, cuz he's not working with us buying a mansion when he's, you know, in jail. But we so this is back maybe our second or third year in real estate. And Julie and I were selling quite a few houses in this area called Clintonville, Ohio which was near Ohio State, which was near Battelle. And so I get a call from a, a gal, and you know, she said, basically what Julie said, we're thinking we want to buy a house, and we, we aren't really price sensitive, and this was like two or three years into the business, and Julie's average sale price was probably only like 140 grand. And we're going like, oh, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> this doesn't what, happen what, what? to us. <laughs> right. And, um, and then 
So, you know, I'm pre-qualifying. I'm not dumb. This, you know, this could be a Looney Tunes person. And Clintonville, Ohio certainly wasn't full of really big-ass estates. And they wanted to go outside of Clintonville. There was this area called Rosemary, which if they, you know, that's where they really wanted to be, again, for our Columbus, Ohio friends, backing up the Olentangy River and all that. And I went door knocking, actually asking neighbors if they wanted to sell and nobody wanted to yeah, sell. But I, here's what I remember about that is I remember listening to the, your prequel, which sounded completely insane. Like, and how will you be funding it? Like gold and like, I, all I remember is you and I were both like, is that for real? That, that just sounds crazy. And I remember that you called one of our, don't say the name. I'm not one of our contacts from the uh, car YPO business and from YPO. YPO. Uh, and she told you, oh yeah, he's for real. And we're like, really? And I remember going to his museum down in Victorian uh, yeah. Village. Yeah, th- this was before. And it was incredible. It this really was, was before he was in the news. So we used our YPO uh, connections to check him out. And they, and this gal in particular, who was the wife of somebody in YPO, who was a sweetheart of sweethearts. Anyway, she, um, you know, we should talk about her. We well, should talk. We should talk about how story. gracious they are. They were well, for which us. is why you called, you know, because right. we trusted them. So it, she said he's for real. So we end up showing some of the coolest properties. In Columbus, and there were some old, mostly off-market, absolutely insane estates uh, that were made just, you know, all the way from the 40s on they up. He basically had no price limitation. He had no price limitation, right. Um, and they didn't end up buying anything because, well, you know what, turns out that, you know, he was headed for federal prison. But that. It, it, So that was a crazy story. Oh, can I tell another crazy well, Columbus but, story? but what made, yes, but what made me think about him was, you know, we were talking about there's no real perfect scenario right so i remember everything we showed him either the house was really awesome but the land was really boring or sucked or the land was incredible remember the property that had caves on it and waterfalls and but the house needed torn down and that was in any price range right and even with new construction you know i remember a deal that we did in granville beautiful house and you know did the pre the walk-in inspection they had forgotten or just hadn't done it to put any insulation in the ceiling yeah. That was new construction. You know, there, there's no perfect scenario. Houses are, are very complicated scenarios. Just to frame out how bizarre of a place Columbus, Ohio is, and how deeply rooted some of the wealth is there, and really I think mostly it's political connections, to be honest with you. Ohio used to be one of the most powerful states in the nation for choosing presidents. Matter of fact, the old saying was, is if you don't win in Ohio, I think people still say you don't win mm-hmm. the presidency. Yep. But I think Ohio has the greatest percentages of presidents that actually were born I think in Ohio. That's true. Taft, and mm-hmm. I think there are a whole bunch. So, um, the this is where you guys are going to think I'm making it up, but I'm not. Again, we knew this through YPO. Occasionally, you would have Margaret Thatcher, or you'd have other heads of state that would come into uh, Columbus, Ohio, and there would be no fanfare, no news about it, nobody would know about it, and they would they would fly in just to meet with some of these you know dignitary types from Columbus or these power players that were in Columbus. I'm sure a lot of them were donating money. Mm-hmm. But I remember, uh, I gotta remember if it was Margaret Thatcher. It wasn't. It wasn't the Queen. It had to have been Margaret Thatcher, I right? I think I remember. What yeah, you this remember. was back in yeah. the '90s. Yeah. Well, this is when you know. So this is actually this was in the '80s, Julie. So it it would have been Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. This was in the '80s. We we had this car cleaning and detailing business, and we had a customer who had this big estate on um, Riverside Drive, and his name was Chris. I don't remember his last name. Remember yeah. his last name? Yep. Um, big guy. Hold on a second. And this guy, here's I want an, to say Woods, but and here's an interesting story about this guy. He was a teacher, and he had prior to him becoming a teacher, he had actually worked at different waste dis, uh, disposal yeah, plants, yeah. and he ends up somehow White. taking, White. yeah, Chris White, yeah. that's who it was. 
he ends up taking uh, one of these businesses public and becomes really, really rich. Chris White. And, and it was, I think he took it public through the NASDAQ. It was mm-hmm. um, Johnson Waste Disposal. Yep. Holy crap. How do I remember that? This know. is good Diet Coke. Apparently. This is good stuff. <laughs> Julie, you remember realize how many years ago this was? I can remember the this is pennies more than, that he this is more than twenty. Drunk. This is more than 25. No, you're thinking of a different guy. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yep. That, that was Jay. Clients, that was Jay we? something that rolls yeah, yeah, rice. And he run that illegal gambling business. We can tell that story <laughs> next if you want to. Well, so uh, who was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So Chris, Chris, White. Chris White had bought, ended up buying this big estate on Riverside Drive. It was wonderful. He was a really, really Beautiful. nice guy. Um, he had was new money, and so he was kind of, you know, awkward with the things he was buying. It was just kind of funny for me to show up occasionally and pick up some of his cars, and you know, because we had this cleaning facility, and we had three guys working for us. I'd pick up the cars, meet the customers, meet and greet, and that sort of thing. Anyway, so Chris calls me, and he and he never calls me. It was always through a secretary, and 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 uh, this was a panic call. Chris calls me, Tim. You got to clean our green Jaguar. Jaguar, green Jaguar. Yes, you, I knew he had one. He bought it for his wife as a present. You got to come out. You got to pick it up. You got to clean it. And I need this done urgently. And he never acted like that. Now, of course, he's a customer, so whatever. So I went and did it. I picked it up, and then I, you know, got it back. It looked beautiful, British Racing green, biscuit interior, and it. So um, his, uh, he wasn't there when I dropped it off, but his wife was. And I said, I hope this is. I hope everything's okay. Like this is unusual. He is a very mellow guy, and she said, Well. This is a secret. You can't tell anybody. But um, I think it was actually at Wexner's estate. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, Margaret Thatcher, and this was when his estate was in Bexley, is mm-hmm. having a private, you know, cocktail party or whatever at, you know, Wexner's estate. And we were invited. Yeah. And we wanted to drive our Jaguar because it was British. Makes sense. <laughs> what the hell? I know. Like, what? Okay. I thought that was funny. Um, gosh, what was the other story you're about to tell? Uh, oh well, just about how. No, what's the other name? You mentioned a name. Oh, um, oh Jay. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. Let's not name. mention his last name. I guess good. That I didn't end well. Yeah. Yeah. So another car cleaning detailing story, and this guy, this this these all happened to us when Julie and I were in college, by the way, basically. So this guy had um, two Rolls Royces, and he had some other normal car, and he had this big gated estate that was in this area called uh, Deer Creek in Powell, Ohio. Yeah. So if you guys hear that horrible music, retreat. it's because we're outside. Yeah, it was in the retreat. It his, was on Deer Creek. retreat was Deer Creek. Yeah. So, um, I remember his estate because I remember seeing the most giant mosquitoes I'd ever seen in my life because it was along the river. Yeah. But it was still, it was beautiful. But I do remember that. That's funny. Um, you know, most of these customers we'd see every six months. He had us come out every quarter. So it was great. And um, he had a lot of their customers, clean customers. And which, by the way, not in case you guys are thinking a lot of those became real estate clients after we got into real estate. I think only maybe two or three of them did. Not a lot. Yeah. Most of them, I think, probably stayed in. Those they were pretty, moving. Big-ass houses. Yeah. They were staying they in were, a while. They were, you know, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. They All those people we're talking mm-hmm. about now mm-hmm. were probably our age, plus or minus, when we were time. working for them. Isn't that yeah. funny to think about? No. Every name I've mentioned so far, when we were working for them, were our age. Yep, you're right. <laughs> Does that make you feel old or young? Oh, it makes me feel appreciative that we had that kind of influence. When I think about people that don't have that kind of exposure to yeah, I know. We people lucky. who are wealthy but also nice. Yeah, yeah. That's actually that was a really and that, let's I, let's I flip around and talk about Ian Rosselli yeah. after this. Yeah. So so this guy, his name was Jay. And uh, he had two Rolls Royces, and one of the Rolls Royce, one of them was a vintage car in the '60s, and the other was essentially brand new. 
And this is brand new, like, and you guys would picture from Miami Vice, brand new. It's not like the brand new one you see nowadays, so yeah. old, brand new. But I think, yeah, you know what, now I think about it, I think he actually had a third one, too. Anyway, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just buy one. So his Rolls Royce, Rolls Royces have this really crazy mineral, the, the, the suspension on Rolls Royces is fluid. You guys have heard probably of air suspension and whatnot. Well, Citroens and old Rolls Royces use this uh, mineral uh, oil system where essentially if there was compression on one part of the suspension, the mineral oil would run through, uh, you know, obviously tubes and then basically allow that part of the suspension not to you know, essentially compress or overly compress. And by doing it, you know, you created hypothetically a really good ride, but the fact is, is those systems always leaked and it was almost impossible to fix them. And you could only buy that stupid mineral oil from Rolls Royce and it costs like, was yeah. more expensive than caviar. You're not getting it at the gas station. Exactly. But so um, the only reason I know that is because I used to take his, to Ro- I, I used to take his Rolls Royce to a place that was service it. And um, I remember talking to the mechanic and he told me like a pint of that crap that he had, the mineral oil was like $200 yeah. or something. Uh, well, so his suspension in the back was always clapped out. So he was always waste, you know, rate, running suspension like the thing would run low in the back and um he never told me why i never asked he wasn't one for long conversations and it was just like how's it going you know whatever tell me when you're done and we'd pick the car up drop the car off you'd pass always in cash too which you know was really a nice benefit and always in small denominations or sometimes believe it or not guys in change and our average service was about 150 dollars per car um and again rolls royce new rolls royce I never took care of suspension was always clapped out in the back until one day he asked me to take care of it. Great. Another car we can take care of for him. He's a great customer. And then it came time for me helping him unload what was in the trunk and what was always in the trunk. And so he opens the trunk and you guys think I'm going to say a body, don't you? <laughs> That's what I always you think I'm going to say a body. Well, I am. There was five <laughs> bodies. No. no, I'm kidding. It was change. It was coins. He had bags and bags and bags of coins. And the coins all had words written on them that were lodges, like um, what would be, how do I explain what a lodge is? Like a private, private club. They're legal, you know. And he had, so he had, can you remember a name of a a lodge? Elks Lodge and weird things like that. I wonder if those even exist anymore. I think they do. Yeah. So he had, um, it turns out, uh, Jay was second or third generation um, one-armed bandit um, gambling money. Uh, let me explain it. Okay, so in Ohio, and I think actually Ohio is legal. Gambling is legal now on, on the, the river, river or whatnot. Yeah. But evidently there was a carve-out in the law that made it so that you could have these one-armed bandit gambling machines in private um, you know, like clubs, like lodges and whatnot. Now, again, who the hell knows because about that? Because it's not a casino, I guess. It's yeah, because it's and so he and his family for essentially all of Ohio. I don't think they had the Cleveland section now that I'm remembering it, but I think all of Ohio, maybe into another state, every single lodge that was there, they had these one arm bandit gambling machines. And, and he would literally occasionally go and he would pick up the money himself, the ones I assume, assume that he were the closest. And they had made who knows how much millions, and it was all perfectly legal. Um, and so that was like a lesson and they were always nice. Like I said, and all these customers were really nice. One of his, his uh, other neighbors was another guy actually ironically named Jay, Jay Blotnick. He passed away recently. He was one of our favorite people ever. Fantastic guy for their kids. Yeah. And, and then, um, so what was the other story we were going to tell? Oh, let's talk about, yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, we you guys have a good, I think, a good splash of color as what we did in our formidable years prior to getting into real estate because we right. didn't have any money. We didn't have anybody writing checks for our college education. We didn't want to borrow any money for college. You know, and so this car cleaning and detailing business um, and through the fact that we were willing to work hard and the fact that these people came to trust us um, really flourished. The car cleaning and detailing business in the 80s, when I was probably 18, 19, somewhere in there, was making over $100,000 a year. Maybe I was 20 when it got up to that point. And Julie and I went to a professor. It was actually a TA, an English TA at Ohio State. And because um, the detailing business was obviously taking off. And we had no limit to how much we could have easily expanded it. Um, and uh, actually, it's funny. The next family you're about to talk about is the family that told us to get into real estate. Ah, mm-hmm. right. Okay. So. And we could have easily expanded. And the, so we went to this TA and we told him, you know, because we liked him and he was trustworthy, we thought. And, he, and we said, well, this is what's going on. And, and he was like listening, like blah, 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 not making eye contact. And he goes, well, how much money is this business making? And, it went, and we told him and he like practically peed himself. <laughs> He goes, what the hell are you doing in college if you're making that much money yeah. uh, in your car cleaning and detailing business? True story. And it wasn't long thereafter that Julie and I both dropped out. We didn't graduate from college. And it's because our detailing business took off. And that business, um, through the experience we had, then basically translated directly into real estate. Because the detailing business, we had to learn how to run a business. We had to learn how to take care of customers. We had to learn how to be worthy of being trusted with some incredibly important assets. We had people that would essentially have us, they would pay us like $10,000, $12,000 in the middle of the winter to go over to their private aircraft hangar at um, the airport. And uh, it's called Millionaire, ironically enough, and take care of their private jets. And some of these jets were worth tens of millions of dollars. And these are just, we were really exclusive, hard to get relationships. Um, and that taught us essentially how to really be drilled down. But what it really did is it busted our bubbles on uh, rich people because we'd you know me more than Julie Julie I think in retrospect you'll admit that you grew up in what was probably more of a left-leaning family than mine I guess but your parents were know. both teachers they couldn't yeah. help themselves I know middle of the road yeah but practically com- but practically communists <laughs> I can unplug you you know <laughs> well at home when they're at home they used to wear these little Fidel Castro oh uh, yeah whatever <laughs> Anyway, so I grew up, I think I'll, I I could safely say that I grew up on the bottom of the middle class. So lower middle class is the wrong side of the tracks on the wrong side of the clear to our listeners by now on the wrong side of the tracks. And then probably mostly on, I would say the upper poor class, if there is such a thing, right? I mean, I'd say that's where I was on the financial spectrum where my parents were and I was just riding shotgun to them. Yeah. Um, so we had all these preconceived notions through no fault of our own uh, of believing that just like many, it's like essentially has become normalized in society that rich people, I mean, you can just fill in the blank with all the, your gross adjectives or evil or take from other well, people. And, that's I mean, a- and if we're being honest in our early childhood, you know, our only exposure to quote rich people in our minds were the kids who lived in Worthington Hills who we all hated. Cause well, I didn't have that supposedly experience. supposedly had big houses. You grew up around but, those kids. I didn't. Yeah. But that, you know, I, that's, and, and that was like, I don't know. If you use your real estate brain, houses might have been fifty grand more than. I didn't know I was poor until I went to middle school, and I was around rich, spoiled assholes like you. Yeah. Well, see, spoiled assholes like me had another rung above us who we hated because they lived up there. Yeah. Well, we. I discovered that too. It was. It was an awakening year. Seventh grade. It was awful. Seventh grade. I hated seventh grade too. Yeah. Well, so, what were we talking about? (laughs) Oh, I remember. 
So we had all these preconceived notions about rich yeah, kids. About, you know, and it was societal and movies and books and, you know, the whole thing. And uh, I remember uh, specifically, it's probably because my name is Tim. I always used to have this, you know, tiny Tim thing with, you know, the... Uh, um, yeah. What was the evil Charles rich Dickens. guy? What's he, yeah, Charles Dixon. What's his, what's his name? I don't remember. Yeah, so that was my exposure to rich people. Rich people were Very evil. Little. Rich people had no feelings. Rich people were just basically, they got their money at, on the backs of A Christmas Carol. They got their back, their money on the backs of poor Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim was going to die because he couldn't get this operation that, you know, whatever, whatever. Okay, So that's really how deeply yeah. rooted my beliefs were about rich people until we started knowing some of them. And not all of them were really rich. Some of them were, you know, I'm sure, you know, working wealthy, but some of them were really rich. And what we discovered quickly is all of our preconceived notions about rich people, you know, were completely wrong. <laughs> there was not a single exception Mm-mm. to that. And, and that was such an amazing awakening thing because we were super scared. I remember back when we were teenagers and or like 20 and 21 and Julie and I both like we were 12 and we were, you know, we would go out and this was when we were in high school listeners. Julie and I met in high school. She was 16. I was 17. And we started dating. I mean, she followed me around like a lost dog. She couldn't. Oh, yeah, right. All she wanted to do I was know my name. It was ridiculous. It, it was it was full on hero worship. Uh, is this, is this podcast called Revisionist History or is this our podcast? <laughs> Actually, you know, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast is called Revisionist History. All right, you so have a star on it. Wow, on the your memory is completely different than mine. Yeah, I think I'd better die cook than you. Yeah. So. Um, we met in high school and, you know, we, we, when we were probably, I was probably a junior and she was a sophomore or maybe senior and right in that whole time era, we, I think she and I were pretty much a matched pair and we're in agreement that we were just going to be together forever. And we actually, my dad made for us a really cool, like a little three by six or three by five card and the, and helped us name the car cleaning and detailing business. We called it the executive service. And it was just a one card, and there was writing on, I think, only one side. And what she would, she and I would do, no matter how cold it was or what the weather was, when all of our friends were out getting laid and getting stoned, and that is what they were doing. It was the 80s, right? That's what you did. Uh, they then, uh, Julie and I would go out to these restaurants in Columbus. And restaurants primarily because the parking lots were, generally speaking, you not behind a wall. And we would put these invitation cards. We called it flyering. And we'd put these invitation cards on the only the nice cars in the parking lot. That's how I learned my cars. That's the only yeah. reason I know cars. You yeah. Know, so we, we you know, we'd go to this parking lot of this usually very nice restaurant, and we would go and put these invitation cards only on, and we wouldn't put it on the windshield because no one would get it. We because it was a card. It was you know a large card. It was thick enough, but not too thick. We could actually put it on the driver's door in the window gasket, and so you couldn't miss it. Um, and that's how we built our business originally. And, and so that's exactly how we ended up uh, having YEO business too, or YPO business, because we ended up flaring one of them. Well, it's the equivalent of door hangering for real estate. Or door knocking, really. But yeah. we were targeted. We were smart yes. enough not just to fly right. every car. Mm-hmm. Because, and here is our logic. Um, we knew that if we 
got a customer with a you know new sixty thousand uh, dollar five sixty SL Mercedes that there is zero chance he didn't at least have one other Mercedes. You you know that that's just and how you did it. Theoretically, they would be paying the bill. Right, or yeah. you know if you know they were married, they were married, yeah. then they'd maybe have the whole thing, and that's what it was. And we had a lot of doctors, a lot of business people, a lot of executives, a lot of everybody, and then they would of course pass our names around. And then we kept pick up more and more customers. And I told you guys when it ended up happening with that little executive service business. Uh, so, and uh, we just learned so much from that experience. One of the customers we eventually picked up, there was this guy in town, and he was mythical, uh, to me at least. And his name was Jack Rosselli. And Jack Rosselli had, he was became somewhat famous. He was third or maybe fourth generation of L. Jack Rosselli. So, like, his son he named, you know, remember it was L. Jack Rosselli. So LJ, it stands for Lewis Jack Rosselli. So they would exchange first names depending on generation. So like Jack Rosselli, who I'm telling you about, like I said, he was either the third or fourth. His dad's name was Louie. His granddad's name was Jack. And so his son's name was Louie. You guys following me on all this? So it was actually really cool. And he had his family was so nice. But what he was really famous for, at least in my little nerdy preteen mind, was he was had a big, guess what, car collection. And he had been all over the Columbus Dispatch because he had a super rare Ferrari 250 uh, long wheelbase, California. Not that I remember. Yeah. And he bought this car out of, I think it was Venezuela. And the car had become famous because during its restoration, they found bullet holes that had been re- that had been reupholstered over in the seat shells. Because while the king of Venezuela or some God knows what was driving it, there was a suicide attempt. <laughs> but yeah, but so this um, he had this really great car collection. He was essentially in Columbus, like Columbus aristocracy. He was one of the ones that I had. I made a list every year of car cleaning and detailing customers that I wanted to attract. Um, and he was definitely always on the list. Wexner was on the list. Eventually, we ended up getting all of them. But he uh, finally, we, we get a shot at his business and, you know, somebody like that because he has a big car collection he definitely knows about everything about cars he knows about what you're doing he knows like are you supposed to be doing this are you supposed to be doing that he knew what Connolly leather was he just knew he was a consummate uh, professional and and, an avid uh, car collector and so we ended up earning his business and they always had cool cars as you can imagine now the car uh, garage or storage facility where he kept all the collector cars we didn't go in there too often. We took care of his drivers, and he had always had a new Mercedes, or his wife had a new 7 Series BMW, and they had usually a Ferrari that they had, things like that. And then occasionally he'd let me work on one of his collector cars. Again, another name you guys should research because he's a fascinating guy. Last time we saw him was actually at a car auction in California. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was like seven, that was probably eight or nine years ago. No, was I? We just ran into him. It was like four years ago. I remember, I'll tell you guys a funny story. So he obviously remembered us as the guys, the people that took care of his, his cars. And he was yeah. always very nice to us. But I was so thrilled to be able to tell him, this was in my 40s, remember, that uh, Julie and I had started buying Ferraris. Yeah, well, I mean, he had a significant <laughs> He impact. couldn't believe it. He thought I was joking. I know. I know. Well, I mean, he probably remembered us as the detailing kids. But, yeah, I know. Um, but he had a very significant uh, influence and so did oh yeah wife, definitely you know well he because he's such a classy guy you know he was I so well dressed very intimidating back then oh he wasn't intim- he was scary as hell he's a quiet talker very reserved and you know he was the car he, he was like the godfather from the original godfather yes you know the marlon brando character yeah. that's who he was like but Something he wasn't better looking I think. but he was tall and he was yeah he is great looking dressed nice impeccably dress. yeah well he so his wife's name is ann and ann um 
was one of the nicest, sweetest, uh, just maternal characters in our entire lives. She, we would, again, this took a long time to really earn our way into their lives. They got to the point where they, when they would go out of town, um, he and, okay, I'll tell you a side story. So he ends up selling this huge car collection to a very rich uh, Chinese family in Macau. Yeah. In China, the island of Macau or something, yeah. which is an, which essentially has become, I think, the number one destination for gambling in the world. Well, the family that was associated, okay, you want to hear a crazy loop? Mm-hmm. All right, the family that uh, was associated or one of the billionaire families that was associated with the development of that whole gambling mecca over in China, wherever it is, mm-hmm. um, they ended up uh, buying his whole car collection. So he and his wife and fly there to meet the wh- whoever it was. And, um, you know, they were, they were signing off on the deal to buy all these cars worth who knows how much, tens of millions at least. Well, so his cars now are largely over on, on display in some private museum over in some basement of some casino in China or something crazy. So weird. All right, so here's where the weird yeah. part is. And let me make sure I go back and talk about Anne. Okay. So um, that one of the families that uh, formed that entire gambling mecca that I just described was – is the same – I talked about this on the podcast last week. Remember I was telling you the story about one of our customers in Greenwich – Rob Johnson. Okay, Rob yeah. Johnson's the number one agent in Connecticut, number one agent in, in Greenwich. He's been a longtime coaching client. So he is in um, – he gets this call from a manservant basically named Bobby who's this British ex uh, – what, MI – what is it? MI6. MI6 guy. And anyway, the, the Bobby works for this um, – Chinese dissident who is living on a massive uh, 200 foot plus yacht off the East Coast because he's afraid of the Chinese government. He's afraid of COVID. Okay, so this guy's living on this yacht and he's looking for this estate. And he, um, you know, I talked about this on the podcast last week. This just happened two weeks ago, by the way. Well, this is what I didn't tell you, Julie. That guy, because mm-hmm. I, I wrote down the name after yeah. Rob told me and I wanted to research him. Uh-huh. So that guy is not only on the outs big time with the Chinese government. But that guy's extended family was one of the families that started the Macau uh, casinos. casinos. That's twisted. Isn't that a crazy loop? It was a crazy loop. Did you follow me on that one? That, that was a long path. <laughs> that was a long path. Wow. I know. But you know what? I, I, and I do want to go back and talk to, about Anne a little bit. But um, all of these memories and these stories and experiences that we had, you know, that was really our original center of influence expansion lesson. Though at the time, we absolutely had no idea how a lot of that stuff was working. And it just goes to show, you know, you follow those breadcrumbs, you never you never know. Like the story we were talking about Tommy Thompson. Most agents, had they heard his story? Well, it was his on girlfriend, the first, Julie. It, it was, was his actually girlfriend. his girlfriend. And she was a nurse. Which was even state. worse, right? right? I mean, that's like 10 times removed what right. was actually going but on. But we pre-qualified. Most people would have been like, that's crazy. And just hung up and never, wouldn't have checked the story, wouldn't have done the research, wouldn't have connected the dots. Do you remember when we got you the know? call from the, la- the gal who was embarrassed to ask her help her sell? It was either a little duck blind house on Roslyn or it was a mobile home yes, or something. I, I use that story in coaching all the time. Tell it. Okay, well, let's, do you want to talk about Ian first so we we'll can go, we'll close go that loop? Okay. Well, so uh, oftentimes on coaching calls, when we're playing, I, I play this game on coaching calls called Show Me the Money, right? I want to know what you're doing in the next 30 days, 90 days, whatever, okay? And Julie channeling her inner Jerry Maguire, evidently. Well, but the reason that we do that is because so many agents are like, okay, let's do a new spoke, let's do new lead generation, let me try this widget or wadget or whatever. 
And before I ever allow that to happen, we look at what's right in front of you is the point, okay? And so this conversation usually comes up when the coaching client will say, oh yeah, there's this other deal, but I didn't really pursue it because the house is so ugly or it's too cheap or it's like five minutes outside of my normal area. You know, you got some excuse why you're not going after it, right? And so after we do that and we add up all of the crap that you're forgetting about, I tell this story about what we lovingly call the duck blind on Rosslyn, where we got a call. Here's how I remember it. You can add some color, but the, the, it was a for sale by owner, actually, originally. And the lady that owned it was a teacher. And this was literally a house that had zero going for it. On top of that, it was on the floodplain. It was built out of cinder block, which for what people... You couldn't get insurance on it. You couldn't get a mortgage on it. It had to be all cash buyer because when the river flooded, (laughs) it was made out of cinder block and the locals called it a duck blind because guess what happened to the house? It became, you know, underwater. That's really the best use for it. And like continuously. So it always looked nice and clean on the inside because everything had just basically been replaced, you know, two days earlier. Yeah. So had very little going for it. But, you know, we were Fizbo hunters and she was nice and she needed our help. Well, the way I remember this is that, of course, I think we ended up selling it to our own buyer who then put stucco on the outside and made it decent. You know what? You're confusing stories. I I know what you're talking about. That's a different story. Maybe it was a different ugly house. That guy ends up going to jail, by the way. Oh, see. That's a different story. The guy that stuck at it goes to jail. No, the story is is that she had a mobile home Mm -hmm. that somehow she had inherited or something. Mm -hmm. She lived in Clintonville. She was, again, like, I need to sell this. It's like something I inherited. Right. And, And then... Um, and she said, I'd called like 10 realtors and nobody wants to list it. Yep. It was one of these stories. So we ended up listing it. We ended up selling it right away. We had hardly sold any mobile homes. But she homes. gave us some kick-ass. But here's what happened. What she turns out that she was the secretary for, now are you remembering? Yeah, the for, now I'll, I'll even remember who. Okay. She was the secretary for uh, an executive, if not the CEO of Mettler Toledo. Okay. And Mettler Toledo was in the process of hiring in new executives uh, and then they, she ends up basically getting us a relationship with Mettler Toledo, and they then uh, basically give us all their relocating executive business, and that ended up serving. And they were all buying expensive houses, and that lasted for our entire for careers. Years. And and so that goes to the point of basically always say yes. Always say yes. I mean, and we have lots of stories like that where if you just take something on face value and you don't, do especially a listing, what you say, <laughs> drill down and ask good questions. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm related to this is what I call the dirt call, you know, when um, the builder, Truco, oh, yeah. you know, I got this Matt wacko, Truco. I had this crazy this sounding crazy. voicemail. This is Matt. I've got some fill dirt. You know, I can drop it off on your lot over there on whatever that and, listing was. And you was. bring it to me on a piece of paper, this note. And, and like, you say, say, Tim, you can't believe this jackass has just called. He's, <laughs> and a matter of fact, I think that? I remember. This is in New Albany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you ended up having me even listening to the recording. And I go, and then I, I caught something. He said something. He mentioned a street or something. Something yeah. in his heavily drawn voice. He says something. I was like, I was like, you know, ooh, <laughs> you know. And so I called him back. And get this, listeners. True story. So he has this big, huge pile of dirt because he just built, uh, uh, dug a basement uh, for a house that he was going to put for sale uh, that was going to be listed uh, with New Albany uh, Realty. Um, And this property was like 1.8 million or something. So I call him and I say, hell yeah, we'll take the dirt because we know another builder that wanted the dirt because he needed to level up. He needed to build up a property. And so we did, you know, we we help people. Yeah, and all the same. So we helped a dirt deal get done. And so we then start talking to Matt and Matt buys this lot. 
I even remember the realtor's name, but I won't mention it. Yep. So he buys this lot from this agent. He's now building this house and he's basically, I was asking about, you know, right? I'm asking about the property. I'm curious about it. It's not for sale. Who knows, right? And I want to know more about him. And he's not only got that lot that he's purchased, but also two or three others. And he had specs on the other end of town in, in Powell. And so um, I, he starts telling me that about the property and asking why I didn't know about it. And I told him, well, it's not, I, no, you know, no one's told me about it. And, and he walks me kind of through the blueprints and everything. We ended, long story short, the, he didn't even have an active listing with this other agent. And this other agent had completely neglected him, hadn't even been following up, hadn't been doing jack. So Matt ends up listing that spec, which we end up selling. He then lists the next two specs, which we end up selling. I think maybe one we double-ended. Then he lists his other expensive specs that are out on the other side of town, one of which gets end up being bought by, guess what, one of the relocating executives at Mettler Toledo. And this guy chose uh, that house. Uh, we'd give him a bunch of listings in the area that he wanted to live because of a description that Julie wrote because the problem with this house is it had a really steep driveway. Do you remember I this? I do remember that. Huh? You remember? <laughs> I remember. It, yeah, so it had a really steep driveway. It was a driveway. great house, but it had a crazy looking driveway. Yeah, it was but, like, a, you know, an Olympic ski run, basically. It was like a dismemberment gorge ski trail. And remember, we lived yeah. where it snowed. So how the hell are you going to get up I and know. down that driveway? And, and so Julie wrote this beautiful description describing how it's like the, I don't even know, French Alps, or I don't even know what. You know, this long, beautiful, swilkly, like about, yeah. And so he's, he ends up, of all the listings we sent him, he ends up choosing that one to see, and he, he buys it, and I, if I remember correctly, yep. you know, look, that's the whole story. But again, this goes to the whole concept of chasing every single lead down and asking the tough questions. And not assuming that just because, and I hear this from agents a lot when we talk about even new construction, oh, they've got a previous relationship. Well, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, they're going to continue that relationship. Remember the expireds on Eastman Court, the, you know, like the big name realtor well, do you had. remember what, uh, uh, Truco, Matt Truco, yeah, he ends up listing all those a condos. 73 unit condo complex with us. I know, because I had, had a lot of fun entering all of those in the MLS in one Yeah, day. but we ended <laughs> up having, uh, we, were, we were carrying a hundred and like, Awesome. 30 or something like that active listings then yeah because of the dirt call being taken seriously right and i i just i sometimes when i talk to agents and i and they're like so prideful that they've delegated the you know pre-qualifying pre-falling yeah, well, what are you losing like what the hell are you doing you never delegate your yeah. pre-qual buyer i don't want to talk to buyers well then you're going to lose probably an opportunity at probably 50% on listing opportunities because most of those buyers have houses to sell. Well, my trained up staff will ask the right questions. Yeah. The hell they, they will. They do. They don't. They think they do. They absolutely won't. That's assuming they make the call at all. Right. I mean, we had to hire some sales assistants then. And I remember basically we wrote scripts and procedures for the sales assistants. But as soon as the sales assistants, you guys call them buyer's agents, as soon as they had enough money coming in that they had financial security for the month, maybe the following month, maybe the month after that, and the number was usually around seven grand. As soon as they had $7,000 you could give them a completely easy lead and they, they would not sell it to them. They'd yep, just screw up. Because they were at their own capacity. They were it. That were done. And that's ultimately what you're going to be dealing with when you're starting to staff up. You know, anyway, so back to Ann Sally. Yes. How did we even get there? Well, I don't know. We're talking about YPO and uh, Tommy Thompson and stuff like that. So uh, you remember, because here's the scar I still have to prove it. We used to dog sit, parrot sit. He had, a, he had a parrot. Actually, I didn't end up parrot sitting because the parrot yeah, was so mean. That's right. Jack we, had we a, decided to opt out of that one. <laughs> well, so sure. we um, we asked Ann once. We said, um, we are thinking about uh, building our detailing business, and we want to uh, ask Jack if he wants to invest. He'd been a longtime client then, very loyal, sent us other people 
you know, we could name drop. Well, and and he was in real estate too. Yeah. And he was a big, huge commercial investor guy. And and so, you know, we would, um, you know, you'd you'd name drop Jack's name anywhere and people would, they would, that prequel done. Here's the keys to my, wherever the hell it was. It wouldn't matter. He was that well respected. So I asked Ann, you know, we want to talk with him about possibly helping us, you know, the detailing business is this, the other thing. And she goes, well, let me see if I can set it up a week or two later. You know, we get invited out to see him. And this guy was definitely, and is definitely, I'm sure, still very intimidating. It's just his mannerisms. I remember that meeting. And so, right? I, I think it was on the weekend, wasn't it? It was yeah. like Saturday morning. And so he calls us out. And he has this, what can only be described as a beautiful, I mean, come on now, right? Put the pieces together. The back of his property was gorgeous. It, and he had this big, huge terraced area. And he was, we, so we, you know, we knock on the door. And says he's around back. We go through a gate. We walk through the gate. And he is sitting, you know, a good distance off. But the what you see is you see this very good-looking Italian man wearing a silk robe with this mean fucking parrot that just wanted <laughs> to kill us named Enzo. And so this bird, basically, would never leave Jack's side. And, you know, he kind of kept it on its perch. Not it was near at all. Yeah, and then it, when they would travel, well, at least when they went to Macau that one time, they asked us to... Um, watch the bird and I was like there's no way we're watching that bird that bird will kill us but we ended up watching their dog this is when we're there in China so anyway so we walked up to uh, you know we slowly walked up to Jack his back was behind us you know and um, we sat down and he was very quiet and you know he'd listen to what we had to say and very charming just always just you know again a really really good role a role model for us and how to behave Um, and we asked him, you know, this is what we're thinking about doing. This is what, this is the numbers. This is the other thing. He asked us some few good questions. And then he said, he sat back and he leaned and he, he, you know, I'm sure we are very, you know, as polished as we could have been. And he said this, he, he didn't want to invest. He didn't say it. He didn't want to invest. He said, I want you to think about this. He said, don't make your passion. Don't make your hobby, your business is what he said. I remember that. Yep. Don't make your hobby your business. He said, when you make your hobby your business, not only are you going to probably uh, have a bad business, you're going to ruin your hobby. And then I think he, he I think he then suggested that we actually think about getting into real estate. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he did. Yeah, and that was important <clears throat> for me to hear too because, you know, I'm a musician and had been going to music school and that same mantra of don't make your hobby your business, you know, that applied to both of us actually. And um, let me tell a quick story about Muffy the dog. Sure. Okay, Muffy so, was their dog. So the scar on my foot, I remember we were, we, we said no to the parrot, and but we'll take care of Muffy the dog. Muffy was this little fluff, Sweet dog. fluff ball Maltese, right? Yeah. And at the time we were living in a little condo on Plant Drive that didn't really have an enclosed backyard. But Muffy had been going out doing her business, you know, going out three or four feet until one morning when it was a lovely 40 degrees and half frozen snow, mud, just a typical nasty February day in Ohio. She, ta- she takes off running out the back door, like running, running, okay? And I, this is like Jack Brasile's wife's dog. Yeah. For the love of God. It's not, like, it's not like I can just wait for it to come back. I got to no. go after this thing. So I'm wearing like a, a t-shirt nightgown, night yeah. okay? And no, I think I had socks on, underwear, <laughs> socks, you know, nightgown. And it's 40 degrees, but I have to go. So I take off running after this, this dog. And I remember Muffy thought it was hilarious to like you know act like she's slowing down i get close kind of like what max does now and then take off well this was in a sea kind of like what zoe does now and zoe too yes <laughs> like they're all the same brain this is in a sea of identical 
just hundreds of condos that all looked the same over in Worthington Woods. And I remember running and running and running. And it's like a half an hour. And I, I am so far away from our place, but I've got to get this damn dog. And so finally, in an act of desperation, now I'm, oh, okay, so in the process, I'm chasing after her. I slide on somebody's front porch, and I've got a bloody gash in my knee, okay, and on my, the top of my foot, okay? So now I'm muddy, covered in rain, sleet, no shoes on, and bleeding. And barely dressed. And, and barely dressed. So I clearly look like an escaped asylum person, you know? And so... Well, we got to tell the asylum story after this, how we used to get calls from the... Uh, uh, the, oh, the asylum. All right, we'll tell that story next. So finally, <laughs> in an act of desperation, somewhere I had seen on TV, dog trainers would like curl up in a little ball and start whining like a baby dog, you know, so, like Zoe does now. So I get into this pine tree in the snow and mud, bleeding. Now I'm curled up acting like a little baby dog. And Muffy comes right over and I grab her and I'm like, you will not get away from me this time. And I remember holding on, and she was filthy and disgusting, too. I hold her by her fur, and I'm like, then I look around, and I have no freaking clue what street I'm even on. <laughs> because, remember, that subdivision um, was everywhere. There were thousands of these freaking condos. And so, finally, I'm, like, tracing back the numbers. What was that movie we just way. watched where everything, oh, all the houses were the green was. on It was Netflix. exactly like that. Yeah. That's right. I can't remember the name of that now. We just watched it that two nights ago. That was a crazy ago. movie. Um, Start with a C. It'll come to me in a yeah. second. So finally, I find my way back, and Muffy is saved. But that's why I have that scar, is because of that damn dog. Yeah. Well, so Ann Rosselli. At least it wasn't a parrot taking off, I guess. She got to, uh, you know, she knew when college tuition was due. And oh, sorry. be careful. Yep. She knew when college tuition was due, and she, because, um, you know, we were going to high State at the time. And every, you know, obviously, uh, what she would do, just checking my technology. Sorry about that, listeners. So she, uh she would, uh, we, you know, drop off her BMW or whatever it was, and she would then, you know, pay us, and she would always pay us in cash, and she wouldn't. Pay, the amount was 125 or 150 bucks, and she would never count it. She would just grab whatever is in her wallet and just give it to us, and like she did. She would really do this around Christmas, and we would always. It's $150. I know. It's fine. Goodbye. Get out of my house kind of thing, right? A couple I mean, of times she, you even said I, that Jack had already paid well, us. Let, let, well, that's yeah. where I'm getting to. So yeah. so she then, you know, she overpays us. And this was actually around Christmas. It was, I think it was um, fall or I don't remember what. It was around Christmas yeah. and it was uh, tuition was due. Mm-hmm. So she, same routine. She gives us a big wad of cash. And it was like $2,000. And then Jack comes home. And um, I, I was just, you know, basically getting ready to leave. And he then uh, tries – he then pays us for the same job. And I said, Jack, your wife's already pays us. And he goes, Tim, he goes, I know. <laughs> he said like, he, he, he knows. Care of us. He, he knows. He knew. And, and this, so this has been something that, you know, they had done for all these years that helped us to basically stop borrowing money to pay for Ohio State, which we shouldn't have done in the first place. But so – yeah, he was. They were intentionally double paying us, yep. and I, I remember actually one of the times when she had done it the first time, um, I actually kept the overpayment and I tried to give it back to her, and she wouldn't take it back. Yeah, and that's when I realized that she was doing it intentionally. Yeah, very, very, very classy. Yeah, subtle and the, but and classy people. And she would always like you know there was um, there would be occasional customers, new customers that we would get that would be we'd assume in that same social circle and we would ask her if they're legit because some of them would have us 
like there was a guy that had like three Lamborghinis and just all this other stuff. And we would call her and we'd say, you know, is this, what's the story? And she never really said anything. She wasn't gossipy. She would just say yay or nay, basically. And, um, you know, so there was a lot of stories like that. But that example, I think Julie and I will never forget because we modeled that behavior and for ourselves and we, we, that's how we act. And we, so we learn from those experiences that all the preconceived notions that apparently our parents and the people around us in our little, you know, middle-class, lower middle-class world had about rich people were completely wrong. And there was never a single exception to that experience to all the customers we had in that business. Never one. What was the story you're about to tell? Oh, so we get into real estate and it was probably the second or third year in real estate and we started doing uh, just listed, just sold cards, mm-hmm. which, by the way, we learned and we tell you guys in the coaching program, don't mail the just listed, always just mail the just sold. Yeah. And so we were selling a lot of um, houses that were in the same area where there was this place called Harding Hospital. Yes, a mental institution. <laughs> a mental institution. It had been there a long time. I think it's named after President Harding. It but, was. Um, yeah, and so we had this really great. But it was it wasn't a drug and alcohol rehab. No, you got there, was, I don't think they have mental institutions, state-run mental institutions. I don't think so. No, this one was private. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, so we had this great title girl. I can't remember her name now. No, you're you're getting she, ahead of the well, story. She, well, you tell it then. Because yeah. I have maybe a different version of it, but that's okay. No, but her story, she was joking, and what I'm telling you now actually really did happen. <laughs> so we would always get these the strangest ass calls. And it would be literally like you're talking to crazy people. Because our cards went everywhere. It's not like we selected certain houses. Right. And we didn't realize that the cards were going to Harding Hospital. So we were getting not only neighborhoods that were covered in the cards, but also every time we mailed to this particular area, which we were frequently because we had a lot of customers there, we were getting, uh, we were basically soliciting uh, people that were in mental institutions. And evidently these would go to people who lived in mental institution because they the way it was listed in the service we were using to mail the postcards the people in the mental institution each had their own address for so they could receive mail and so it made it into this mail list that you know those are private addresses so whatever and the system wasn't that technically sophisticated so you couldn't remove apartments or whatever i don't remember the whole thing anyway so we get these crazy ass calls from people and then it would happen every time we mail these postcards and some of these calls were just and we just got to the point where and we were new in business that we didn't know that was abnormal <laughs> i know well all i was remembering is that there was enough of it Somehow our title gal was involved. She's like, do you guys have like a poster up over there at that mental institution? Because you sure have some crazy clients. I'm like, well, was it an actual crazy client or were they just acting poorly because they're pending? But I mean, the the experiences you have. You just can't make this stuff up, you know. But it all goes back to the same thing. You just always have to be, you know, saying yes. And on the other, there's nothing really on the other side of no. There's no, no, there's no good things on the other side of no. No, that, I mean, I always tell them in, in Premier Coaching, you know, if something is pretty far out of your wheelhouse, you know, maybe you've never done a commercial deal before, you can partner with a commercial agent, you can refer it and make a referral fee, but don't just not return the call because it sounds crazy, like the yeah. dirt call, you know, dig a little deeper and see, and, you know, the deal that you do might not even be with that person, maybe it's a referral or they remember you were nice to them, we used to get tons of open house people calling us back and they mostly in the first time buyer crowd that would say you know what you guys were the only ones who gave us the time of day it was two years ago and we weren't ready yet yep and it is interesting though that from the detailing business i wonder when our first year like we didn't really have to heavily solicit we would solicit mail call our our you know car cleaning detailing customers but like julie said they wouldn't actually transact that frequently um and they probably had their own you know agent that they'd known forever and maybe 
asking the, the family and asking the people who are their car cleaning and detailing, you know, kids just a couple years before to sell their, you know, multi-million dollar estate was maybe a bridge too far for some of them. But a lot of them did do real estate transactions okay. with us. Eventually, some of our original people. Yep. Some of our original deals were just from that. But where did that come from? If you if you dr- just trace all that back, the original, you know, what was the seed? It was going out every Work. single freaking weekend when it was cold and it was sure. raining, when you and I were kids and we were flyering cars and we were doing exactly what we didn't want to do and we didn't want to do it at That's the highest sure. level. We weren't going out for pizza. We weren't going to movies. We were going out in the rain and the cold and we were flying cars. And, and it we, worked. It and we worked. did that every single freaking weekend for yeah. years. Yeah. And it, it became it, habitual. It was. And it, it was interesting how many of our those clients knew each other to your story yep. points, you know. And so and Columbus isn't a tiny town either. This isn't a matter of like there's six no. streets in town and everybody knows each other. It's just that in certain uh, social circles... People know each other, and there's a great benefit to that when you're on the right side of that. So, well, we had the yeah. doctors. Remember, we started working yeah. with you know the groups Little, of doctors, like mini centers of influence, mm-hmm. basically. Yep. Um, you know, so and we would have like certain office buildings where we'd go there and pick up two or three cars because they all know each other that way. Well, so was it Riverside Hospital? Was that the ho- what was the hospital where we had so. all those? We had a bunch of cardiologists. Riverside, and yeah. they had the, you know we had some private practice ones as well. Um, you know, it worked. And so, through that, we ended up having like the guy who was the CEO of Huntington National Bank. Yep. He would have us do his private jet. And I think I'll try to remember the name of it in a second. But I remember the first time I walked in that private jet, it was the fanciest thing I'd ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. Fancier than any of the fancy cars. Yeah. It was spectacular. Um, but so just an interesting side note, when we were doing aviation stuff, jets any kind of mostly jets when we have to detail those i actually had to have somebody who knew about jets i had to have to hire him for those particular jobs because uh i didn't know anything about avionics and i didn't know and you know when we when our crew went out they were just used to doing cars and there was no yeah exactly you don't know what on an an airplane wing is a you know hidden radar or whatever so we were always very careful we taped those things off with you know um Builders tape, blue blue tape, so we wouldn't. Yeah, so that whole thing. But anyway, those are experiences are all coming from the other side, doing what you don't want to do and you don't want to do at the highest level. We're do a lot you, of that. And you know what, though, Julie, what? every single thing that uh, we're most proud of in our lives is mm-hmm. coming just exactly from doing what you don't want to do and you don't want to do at That's the highest true. level. That's and true. There are, and, there are and, exceptions. You know, I think that it's not just that, but doing that very consistently. But, we we didn't just dabble in flying cars. We no. did it every freaking weekend, right. rain or snow. You know whether we felt like it or not, and you know, there were certainly tons of real estate experiences like that as well. Sure. You know, our first I don't know probably hundred deals came from door knocking Fizbo's expired and open houses and doing tons of lead follow up. Well, because the hustle wasn't the hustle yeah. had become part of our DNA at that point. Yeah, it was just habit. When we followed Jack's advice and we ended up getting into um, uh, you know real estate, we got our licenses, and yes, I got a slightly higher uh, score than Julie. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm remembering that. You paid him off. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, those that the hustle is what so we didn't actually know that we were tracking for selling over 100 houses our first year. We didn't know it was. Um, I remember exactly where we were. We were sitting outside of a movie theater after, of course. Uh, I mean, we weren't obviously as real estate, so we weren't having to fly our cars anymore. But I remember one of the restaurants that we used to frequently fly every Friday and Saturday night was in the same parking lot of this movie theater. But I remember sitting there. Um, waiting for the movie to start, and um, we were trying to add up. What month was it? Was it like July or June it was warm or out. August? It was warm Somewhere out. In there. 
which gives you what about two days in Columbus, and then it's cold again. Yeah. So, uh, and I remember adding up all the houses we'd sold, and we were just guessing. We did not have it organized. We did not. There was no CRM. There was. Yeah, we were, and we and we remembered. Okay, they bought. Okay, that was Bob. Bob ended up doing three transactions, and then we wrote it all down the best we could. We didn't even write it down. We we're just adding. Like we were remembering together and counting together, and we got up to the number. I think it was like seventy-five, mm-hmm. and I remember going seventy-five. Huh? Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad. So we called up uh, Rory, our broker. True story. And Rory was never long on words. <laughs> Ever. So we called yeah. Rory, you know, and we said, Rory, quick question for you. And you have to talk really fast because Roy talked really fast. You guys think I talk really fast? Roy talks really fast. Before he hangs up on you. you got, yeah, exactly. Roy talks really, really fast. So we um, said, Roy, uh, so we're trying to figure out if this is good or bad. Just let us know. So we've sold uh, and closed, you know, pending maybe, 75 houses. I, I do remember it being July. I think that's about right. And uh, we want to know if that's good or bad. What, you know, how does that rank up to any other agents? Remember, first year, there was no internet. There was no, you know... We were getting lords and plaques and crap, but we didn't pay much attention to that. We never did. And uh, this is what he said. 75, huh? Call me when you get to 100. Click. Yep. <laughs> That's what he did. Him. Yep. And we, I, I, said, I said to Julie, yeah, he said, I guess it's no big deal until you sell 100. So, you know, whatever. Let's go watch well, your movie. <laughs> and he had been doing 100 plus for a long time. So oh, yeah. that was like his standard that you kind of suck unless you're basically at near my level, right? Well, so, but that wasn't but, that wasn't but the no, vibe. I don't mean that. I mean that his perspective was that, and that you know we were blessed to have an experienced broker that had sold and would also be strangely motivational with his one-liners. Right. You know? but, and we did. And once we get to yeah. over a hundred, and then and then it's like it was the end of the year, and then National Association of Realtors found out about it. They named us Agent of the Year in the rookie category. We uh, end up going on a national tour. Remax flies us around. We end up writing a book, zero to ten million in one year, and the book's no longer available. And we sort of then started having people ask us about coaching. But here's really what my big takeaway was from Rory reacting that way. Mm-hmm. And this is my coaching brain, not my agent brain. Had we sold twenty five houses or whatever by July, and we had all of a sudden started having our asses kissed and all these awards and people telling us we're the greatest thing since forever, we probably would have had so much. Um, lizard brain satisfaction from the yeah. recognition from other people. Ego stroke. Ego stroke. We probably wouldn't have been as motivated as we were to nope. get to 100 because we wanted to get to 100 because what was 25 more after you'd already sold 75, right? And and so I wonder sometimes when you hear all these plaques and these awards and all, oh, you're the agent of the month and you're thinking to yourself, well, thanks to the trophy and whatnot, but I had one closing. That means nobody else in the office of 75 had any Yep. It's like an attendance award. You're, it's kind of a low bar, people. You're it. You're the only one that sold a house. And yeah. so you get these awards and plaques in real estate. And, and it's like, I sold 12 houses and I was agents of, agent of the year for my region. I mean, yeah, I appreciate you it. You but need to move. Well, but I mean, that stuff is really, it's dangerous because what they're trying to do, and they being the awards givers, is they're trying to manipulate your ego. They're trying to essentially get you to want more. And they're really trying to seduce you in the idea and your subconscious mind will definitely, especially if it's you know doesn't it hadn't been experienced in attention like ours hadn't been at that level, and so your subconscious brain will start wanting more. So you'll start saying, "I want more attention from recognition. I want more people to think I'm great. I want more, 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 more." And then what happens is, if you ever had a profit motive, you'll forever lose it because mm-hmm. you are now your your north star is that recognition from other people, and you will literally pay for it. Well, you, I, you know, I think that that actually that urge for recognition actually gets worse the more deals they do, 
because your experience with a bigger variety of deals means that you're going to deal with some stressful deals now and then and you're going to feel underappreciated. Then somebody sends you a plaque and you're like, woohoo, you know, because you, you get your head kicked in now and then. And then the recognition is that much more significant. So I think you're right. If you had a profit motive, it goes away and it's very hard to get it back once you fall into that trap. It's the question sometimes we ask on our normal podcast, right? So if you had, if you, you know, 30 year old self, and I'm talking to the 50 year old version of you, if I said to the 30 year old self, if you have to choose one, either being rich or famous, which would you choose? And the 30 year old self, you guys know the answer, would always choose um, famous. Julie and I chose rich. And we chose rich because we always had the idea that we'd eventually get to be wealthy enough that we could live off the cash flow from our paid off rentals. And guess what? We did it. Yeah. It took but until that was a very conscious thought. That yeah. Was not and we had to fight against it because yeah. we had so much, uh, you know, I mean, the attention, and everything. We didn't feel like we deserved it because we didn't really think we'd done anything to merit the amount of attention that we right. were getting. That's true. It was weird. We were just way. basically selling houses and we were, you know, we paid off our student loans the first year and it was fun. It was fun yeah. working with you, you know. But it, it's when you decide that you are going to want to be, even subconsciously is where it happens. If you choose, and you could be 50 and all of a sudden start being successful, or 60, and your ego, unless you have your head screwed on straight, it's going to want that attention. It's going to absolutely die for the attention and the recognition. And then what happens is you will then may have made a decision that you're choosing fame over wealth. And your future self will definitely be pissed that you did that. Because the future self is going to one day wake up and realize that the gratitude, or not the gratitude, but the recognition from strangers is a absolute false prophet. And it completely goes with the strongest winds in and out. The people that are congratulating you one minute are going to think you're an evil person the next. So always run a profit-driven business. So if you're 30 and you're realizing that you know, these jackasses that are selling you guys into the believing that you can be social networking kings and queens and that somehow is going to help you build a profitable real estate business. What they're doing is manipulating you through your ego because they know, and this is, what is social networking? Narcissism. That's what it is. It's basically people, it's narcissism. That is, there's no real, you know, useful information that's getting passed back and forth. It's it's sort of a, a fake splice of what you'd like your life to be. And it's one after the other after the other. Or it's the exact opposite. It's complete hate. And so you guys are thinking that you can somehow follow the path of all these false you know, guru coach types telling you you can social network. They're appealing to your desire for recognition. Mm-hmm. They're, and that's what Facebook is. Oh my gosh, I put something up or Twitter. I want to see if someone responded. I want to see if I got a like. That is all your egos being manipulated. This is classic psychology. Basic shit here, guys, right? You know? Maslow, ring the bell, the dog salivates, same thing happens. You hear um, you know, a, a, some sort of ping on your mobile device telling you that someone's responded to a Facebook post. You literally can be in the middle of the you know, most passionate lovemaking session of your life and be thinking about what someone just posted or tweeted back, Gotta right? Go check it. Go exactly. Check it. Do you guys get it? That's all because they know how to manipulate you. And it's all basically a dopamine-based response in your brain. And it, you get addicted to it. And the more um, you get addicted to it, the more of that dopamine response, uh, it, more you have to essentially induce it in order to have the same chemical release. This is all you know, brain uh, science. And so you'd even do more essentially uh, ego stuff to draw even more attention to yourself, to get even more recognition. And you become more and more beholden to strangers giving you recognition. And that becomes your currency, not actual wealth. And then you essentially destroy your future because you're taking, you're essentially, 
you're feeding so much into your ego's desire to be loved. That's really what you want, loved and accepted. You've foregone the profit motive and the people that induced you into wanting the recognition did it intentionally because then now what? They've got your money. Your broker gives you un- unmerited attention, at least on the level in which most agents receive it. For what? You never asking about commission splits. You never asking about office expenses because that's the person that gave you recognition. You're certainly going to be willing to pay for it. So you're not going to go and grind them over commission, are you? And then you're going to have, you know, it, you guys get the point here, which by the way, is the reason I love the XP Realty. One of the reasons I love it so much. When that business was created, Glenn Sanford created it at, he tells a story. I watched a video of it. It's probably was the most moving thing. It was the most influential thing on Julie and I aligning with the XP Realty, uh, which is probably one of the best, smartest business moves we've ever done. Um, he was, in this video, he was talking about how I think it was in two thousand he was, you know, looking back and he was talking about how in like the real estate crash, he was in real estate himself selling real estate and I, I maybe I'm getting my facts wrong. And then he ends up um having this sort of epiphany about EXP Realty and puts these slots together and the business model is like nothing I've ever seen before. It's so agent centric. But the thing that he said was I was uh, have seen what this industry can do to an agent, especially in a downturn. I'm going to build something to make it so that agents don't have to suffer and agents can have multiple streams of income. Agents can basically retire you know, wealthy if they fully embrace the opportunity. Agents can have control of their own businesses. And I'm not going to, he was with Keller Williams at the point previously, I'm not going to make the same agent manipulating you know, moves that maybe Keller Williams did, right? I might be remembering some of this wrong, but you get the gist of it. Julie, when you watched that video with me, what was your memory of it? Just, you know, the authenticity of it and the forward thinking that, you know, there's so many benefits in so many different directions. A lot of brokerages, it's like, okay, I'm only here because, like, the name, because I think I have to be a Sotheby's agent, you know? Right. But that's really most of what you get. Well, but the reality um, of it is EXP nowadays... has the, all of that. Nowadays, the brand doesn't even matter. That's my point, is that most brokerages, you know, there might be one reason you're there... But really, you, you're just not feeling it, okay? If, EXP covers your bases. You have to put your license somewhere. You get all of the marketing support. You lose a lot of costs that you definitely are sustaining right now that's unnecessary. I mean, there's one thing that COVID's taught us is you don't need to be going to an office to be doing a lot of business. Most of our coaching clients are having a really kick-ass year, and some of them are their best quarters ever, and they haven't been to their office for four months. Well, EXP is quickly becoming the most dominant real estate brand in the world. You Not just the United why. States. I mean, they're adding so many agents, 31 or 32,000 agents now. It's incredible. It's the fastest growing real estate brokerage. But one of the founding tenets, aside from Glenn realizing that he needs to essentially do the right thing for agents, which he definitely does, uh, building multiple streams of income, making yes. it so the commission split is something reasonable, making it so agents can actually save money. They don't have to, you know, then, but at the core of it too, there is not a lot of ego manipulation that goes on at DXP. Well, actually, that's something that I've definitely observed because everybody is literally on the same team. Right. Agents are way more supportive. And I've even had EXP agents who came from somewhere else because pretty much everybody did that's EXP say, I think of my agent colleagues completely differently now, and I want to help them at a higher level. Right. And I honestly, if I think back to all the other models, I don't think I've ever heard that anywhere else. No. Not really. Not truly agent-centric, agent-owned, um, agent-controlled, well, you know, and you just Look get at so the many, stock. The that's, stock, that's the stock has doubled this year. I, I actually 
heard a gal on a conference call last week talking about the fact that in um, uh, 2016, she was awarded what amounts to $16,000 in EXPI stock because she hit icon status. So icon status at EXP, so your cap is um, 16,000, which you know you earn about 80,000 and on an 80-20 split, you'll pay in 16,000. And then when you sell an additional 20 units or you have a total GCI of 500 grand, then you qualify for icon status. I'm skipping a bunch of details, but that's the gist of it. When you qualify for icon status, that means that uh, you will then be given, essentially awarded back the equivalent amount of 16,000 in EXPI stock. So EXPI stock at the beginning of this year was like $8 a share, $8 and something, $7, some, you know, in that range. Uh, and now it's trading in the low 20s, okay? High teens, low 20s. Well, you know, in 2016, I don't even know what I was trading for. But she was awarded $16,000 yep. of the XPI stock because she hit Icon. So if you guys aren't figuring this out, in essence, she doesn't really technically end up paying the broker. Any, well, technically, she pays the broker something. But when you look at the net of it, but she gets $16,000. She gets all the money back. So she didn't end up yeah. paying. But, well, but look, stop there for that's a second. That's $16,000 in stock that she was given. Now, as of last week, is over $100,000. And incredible. she didn't do anything. And I know another gal who was with EXP, um, this may have been, maybe she's been with EXP for like six or seven years. And she re, uh, uh, is a multimillionaire mm -hmm. and, um, and she's in her 60s. I had her on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And she's a multimillionaire just because when she was um, aware of the stock and she bought shares too, she was buying it for less than a dollar. That's incredible. It is incredible. But think of the brilliance of that model because to cap, you have, you're a motivated agent, right? That you want to cap as fast as you possibly can and you get rewarded that cap money back at that next level, which keeps you also motivated. Right. Then you get it back. You didn't have to write a check for it. Yes, you paid your cap money, but it's not like you were, you know, buying it whatever. Uh, and then there's even a discount involved. And yeah, yeah, it's you incredible. can. So you can take. I think, I think it's five percent of your uh, commission, and you can buy the EXPI at a ten percent discount. It's amazing. And then you get, as you said, awarded stock for other benchmarks yep. that happen. You happened. sponsor somebody. You get um, a sponsor all allocation of $400 to the XPI stock. Yeah, so I when we say awarded, you're you're not buying it. It is literally being given to you. Yeah, well, there's a vesting period of three years, but that is the gist of it. It's but amazing. I think, I mean, there's just, it's an amazing company. And, and so many agents that we have attracted that we brought into EXP, uh, hundreds and soon thousands uh, hearing from them and sharing the air with them, you know, via, th you know, through zoom or whatever and hearing the gratitude they have towards Glenn and this company yeah. because of the fact that he masterminded this idea and then so many thousands now tens of thousands of other people helped build it. That is, That's I don't remarkable. even know how to express how magical that feels. I know. It's pretty amazing. You it often amazing. say, you know, one of the best decisions we've ever made. And, you know, I don't know if people realize the consternation that we put ourselves through before we made Years. that decision. Years. Years. And, you know, but aren't we glad that we did, you know? And, and I think that I'm grateful on the level that, you know, whatever influence we have to help them make good decisions like that, that makes me feel good as a coaching organization, too. You know, that we're able to reach more oh, yeah. people in a variety of different ways and to help them. Well, that was the thing that know, drew ultimately that for it. me. 
I mm-hmm. so people agents would ask us all the time which broker should we choose and honestly they're they're all the same right so you know if you had asked me that two years ago I'll tell you right now I just would have said doesn't matter whichever one's closest or whoever has yeah. the best donuts on Wednesday office day I don't know I mean it wasn't much of a difference they're all the same I mean Sotheby's is the same as Coldwell Bankers the same as Prudential's the same as Re- I mean what's the difference that there's varying degrees of this or the other thing or perceived vet brand you know here ultimately guys they're basically all the same and it's just just essentially your tolerance for paying oh this one gives you leads oh this one gives you support and this they're all the same they're all basically the same they have to be the same in order to basically recruit and retain agents it's not like one of these big companies is going to have a huge advantage over the others and then comes exp and so what exp does is it makes the agents in essence owners of the company through the stock you can buy the way by the way buy the stock on nasdaq but also through the revenue share model, and that's absolute pure magic. You know, I, I did a um, I did a little poll. Can I tell you about this Mm-mm, on right. our oh, EXP yeah, revenue share group, yeah. and I asked the it was a simple question: How much money would you have to have to coming in per month in order to feel financially free? You, was, you meant passively by a revenue share? Yeah, passively by a revenue not, share. Not just money coming in, but you know, commissions. Right. And, and the, it started out at like a thousand a month, thirty five hundred a month, five thousand a month, seventy five hundred a month, and I went all the way up to like a hundred thousand a month. The most frequent or the most common answer was seventy five hundred a month. And there were, you know, I don't remember how many people. I did this survey twice actually. There were dozens of people that once they got to seventy five hundred a month mm-hmm. around there, they would feel financially free. And I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? Because and then if you do the math and how many people you actually have to sponsor on average to get to 7500 per month it is a shockingly small number mm-hmm. because there's so many agents that are joining EXP right now there's so much incredible momentum and so you know it's, it's so bizarre to me in just the past 2 years how EXP has gone it was right on the edge of um name recognition people like when we started with EXP I was hearing EXP who and yeah. now everybody knows what EXP is Everyone's EXP curious or on their way to joining EXP, it seems, or mm-hmm. as soon as they realize what they're leaving on the table with where they're at, you know, and some people will say, well, we have profit share at our business. Well, how much profit share do you make? You know, how much, how does that actually work? Well, in a profit share model, they're sharing with whatever is left after they run the business, the brokerage and paying all the staff and whatnot. And if they choose to have no profit left in the brokerage, there is no profit share. That in itself means that you can sponsor a bunch of agents that say, for example, Keller Williams. And I'm not bagging on Keller Williams. It's a great brokerage. But you can sponsor a, gr- a bunch of agents at Keller Williams. And if those agents' brokerages essentially never turn a profit, you're never going to make any profit share on those agents. And so what's the point of recruiting in a model like that? It's actually going to work against you. Well, EXP, what Glenn did was he made it revenue share. And this was the – for you guys that don't understand this, and truthfully, I didn't quite understand the power of it um, until you know I'm thick-headed. It, you know, I didn't quite understand the power of it until we got started. But revenue share, so a check, a commission check comes in from a real estate transaction that someone uh, on your team's, you know, did transacted, and you get paid off the top before the brokerage, before the agent, before taxes. You get there's no delusion of the percent that you're getting paid. It's off the top versus you know profit share, which get gets paid on the back. So what Glenn did is he said, you know what, we can be virtual. We don't have to have all these fixed cost off you know offices and franchises and regions and all this other stuff and he thought of all this guys before anyone else did genius this guy and then what we can do is because we can uh 
we're going to not have to spend all this money on all this middle management and infrastructure and these legacy costs that really the industry doesn't need. Who really goes to real estate offices anyway? We're just going to give that money in the form of revenue share back to the agents that are helping us build the brokerage. And so now there are agents out there who are making money at EXP who are making money from selling houses. They're making money from maybe they have some rental properties. They're making money from the appreciation of the stock and they're making money from revenue share. And there's actually seven other ways you can make money at EXP too. So to think that there's this brokerage that exists now, um, you know, and I, I tell this story and I really mean it. Had Julie and I, I'm talking this formidable Julie and I, we're sitting outside of that movie theater again. Mm-hmm. We're plotting and planning and, you know, what we're going to do to buy the number of rental properties that we needed to basically have them all paid off and sort of in our minds figuring out how much money we'd have to come up with to put down the houses, how long it would take. And the thing we didn't plan for but definitely ends up happening is when you have a big goal of having dozens of paid off properties before you are 40, that paid off, you know, that money isn't coming from, it, you're having to earn that money. Mm-hmm. So when Julie and I would, were making consistent money because we were listing based, that money wasn't going to lifestyle. That money was going to paying off the rental properties and buying more. We, the, you know, we, and we ended up in, what we ended up doing is basically um, paying cash for them. So we ended up essentially developing, a, we, we got our lifestyle to the point where we were willing to forgo you know, a lot of the niceties that some of you guys take for granted because we are saving up money to buy another rental property for 120 or 150 grand that's now worth like twice as much, right? And that's what we did. And we did that for years. And um, so that meant we, for years, sacrificed for the idea that when we were 40 and Jules was 39, that we'd be able to live off our cash flow from the rental properties. Well, when I was 41 and she was 40, we actually accomplished that goal. But I have to tell you, it was in light, if the EXP revenue share was hmm. available to us, then we wouldn't have bought a no single way. stinking rental property, nope. and we wouldn't have we would have gone on more vacations and had more fun, we would have had a, and we would have had more, more time. Kids. We would have had more children too. Yes, I believe that's true. Yeah, because the amount of sacrificing we had to do to accomplish that goal was insurmountable. And by the way, always having that goal of having the paid off properties always made it so we had to run a profit driven business because we were very mindful. There were two years which we weren't. Uh, when we weren't as mindful as we should have been. But for the most part, we were very mindful of the profit we were making because we had goals that we wanted to accomplish and we stuck to them, except for maybe two years when we didn't really accumulate as many rentals as we had been had the momentum for going into those two years. With revenue share, guys, we're making more off revenue share now than we are off our rental properties that we took uh, basically 20 years to accumulate, more than 20 yeah. years to accumulate. Which, incidentally, even paid off. You know, just because it's paid off doesn't mean all the appliances work. Yeah. Okay. That those things live on. You know, the time. Of course, you know, if I'm I'm managing some of them, but most of them we're paying property managers to pay them. You know, you well, still the, the property taxes are going up right. now. It, it doesn't. It's crazy. You know, the expense and the hassle and the time don't go away until you sell them. Yeah. So, well, and then you don't want to sell them because then you have to pay exactly, taxes on them. Exactly. Right. So you know, it doesn't get better necessarily. Yes, you can pay it off, but that's as better as it's going to get. Um, I even, you know, I always think to myself, ah, that one's finally completely rehabbed and then they'll break something new or there'll be a storm or they're, you know, it's like never ending. But uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Had the XP been around back then, we would not have been motivated to go through that hassle and sacrifice. There's no way we would have. No way. We'd be so much further ahead now, you know? So, but you know, some of our listeners are in that position. We yeah. probably would be further ahead. We probably would have been less conservative with our money buying rental properties. And we would have been willing to take more risks. Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't suck. 
it doesn't suck. But we're my, living, my point we're living is, at though, the we're living at the Ritz Carlton in Puerto right. Rico. We're not complaining here. You guys. know, basically by the beach <laughs> in our own private villa. But my, it worked my, out. My point is that there are people listening right now, whether they're grizzled veterans or whether they're twenty years old. You know, the benefits to making that decision now today. I mean, it's not going to take you twenty years of rental properties. It's going to take you like, it, and it doesn't take. I mean, you don't have to recruit 200 agents. You can do really killer with maybe 10 or 12 my favorite, and feel the impact. My favorite call, when I get a text, mm-hmm. if you guys want to talk to me about EXP, just text me directly at 512-758-0206. But I'll tell you my favorite one, 512-758-0206, is when I get a text from somebody who has a team or somebody with a brokerage. Mm-hmm. Because in neither scenario, they've been listening to us for a while. They maybe read our book. They, you know, and they're realizing that their profit sucks, and they mm-hmm. basically allowed their ego to run their business making decisions for the past few decades. They're at a point in their lives, usually about our age, mm-hmm. you know, where they're not. They haven't accumulated enough. They realize they have no plan B, and they're basically yeah, they're financially not as far des- ahead as they had wanted to be. Right now, they've had a great lifestyle. People sure. kiss their asses. They've got every plaque they can possibly imagine. But they're at the point where they're looking back and they're realizing, I chose fame over wealth. And then when they hear us give, tell that story, you know, yeah. when I, that's something that really is, it, it can be depressing. But the flip side to it is it should be cathartic because then it will allow all of you guys to um, make different decisions. And but it's not too late. It's, it's not too late because EXP is late. just getting started. If You know, it's a, that's the thing is that, uh, uh, you know, two years ago, it's EXP who I'd hear half the time. And now it's like, am I too late? I know. And you're not too late. You're only too late if you wait. You're not too late if you make that decision now. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, and boy, did we ever think it. We probably waited more than we should No, have, we, I didn't think that. I, I wish know. we'd started sooner. That's, That's what, what I wish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, don't, I, I want them all to say thank you past fill in the blank with yeah. your name for making that decision. So, guys, look, your takeaway is this. If you've not had an EXP conversation with me, individual agent, new agent, seasoned agent, somewhere in the middle, if you have a team, if you have a brokerage, you owe it to yourself to have this conversation. If you're a regular listener, as many as you are, you know that we are expecting uh, next year to be a completely different real estate market. The news, the headlines about the great return of the market and everything's great and dandy and the home sales are up. You guys have to realize that home sales still aren't even anywhere near as close as they were pre-pandemic. And furthermore, every what those stories are doing is they're looking back. So they're celebrating things that happened 60 to 90 days ago, not things that are happening in the future. And as far as what your job is as a real estate professional, as an entrepreneur, as a father, as a wife, as a husband, is you need to be looking forward and realizing what you're entering into is going to be a completely different market, completely different skill set. We talk about this every day on our show. You absolutely, positively have to be looking at EXP, and we would love to have you as part of our EXP. We'd love to be partners with you at EXP. You can be partners with Julie and I at, at EXP. If that's something that's interesting to you, please feel free to text me at 512-758-0206. Hey, Julie, today, today's show wasn't as crazy as our normal one, no. our normal Sunday show. After that, eyeballs and stories hope you guys uh, you know got something from that each and every one of them had meaning that we see now looking back that right. you've asked him and julie for you know having those experiences so we can share them with all of you guys hopefully you do something with that even if that's just being more serious about following up on every lead every day because you never know when you're going to have that dirt call that turns into multi-million dollar listings worth of business right so you know hopefully you guys you, enjoyed that you guys don't need to do what we did to basically be winners at exp you don't need to write books you don't need need to have the biggest coaching company and you know you don't need to uh, do what we did you don't need to have a bunch of rental properties you don't need to have you don't need to put anywhere near the amount of effort we did that's the truth what you just have to do is Stop being fearful, stop being a skeptic, and have take a hard look at EXP and embrace it for the amazing opportunity it is. 
and then you're going to realize you're going to the thought process goes from I'm not interested towards I'm sort of interested towards of oh my god now I get it I can't stop thinking about it and then the next phase beyond that is I can't believe I didn't do this sooner and the next phase beyond that is I need to really embrace this for all it is because I can realize a different future in 12 24 36 months it's spectacular this is the last best exp is the last best business opportunity of Julie and I's lives I'm confident of that and many of you, too, are about the same age as we are. So you need to realize that if you're not wanting to face down a recession or a depression, as it's probably going to start being called here soon, look for that to happen probably around the election. If it's not, you know, whatever's coming next, whatever it is, our crystal ball is no you know, clearer than yours. The reality of it is, is you're going to be so much more thankful and grateful to yourself for having aligned with EXP because of the fact you're going to most likely have created uh, multiple streams of income for yourself. So I'd love to have the conversation with you. You can text me directly to my cell phone number. It's 512-758-0206. In the meantime, guys, this is not our normal podcast. Their normal podcast is usually much more buttoned down, (laughs) but do uh, continue to listen. We really appreciate it. Thanks for continuing to make the book Harris Rules bestseller on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the other places. Um, And thank you guys for keeping this the number one listen to daily podcast in the nation. Have a fantastic day, and we'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.